Just in and so good. Thousands of spring deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save big today on new arrivals from Kate Spade, New York, Nike, Sam Edelman, Free People, and Madewell, starting at only $30. Great brands and great prices on dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and more. So rack your look and get first dibs on spring styles you want now from just $30 at your Nordstrom Rack Store. What will you find? The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available ProPower onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. If you've seen the horror movies, The Conjuring, Annabelle, then you're somewhat familiar with the tale of a naughty and oh-so-creepy child's doll that is very much alive and for sure evil. But these are obviously movies created specifically to scare you. Is there any truth behind these films? Was Annabelle actually real? Ed and Lorraine Warren thought so. The famed demonologist investigated the real Annabelle doll in the early 1970s. The real doll was allegedly purchased at a hobby store and given as a birthday present in 1970 by a mother to her daughter, Donna, a nursing student who was turning 28. If the story is true, it was not likely a secondhand doll as the movie suggested. It was uh, most likely purchased new since this particular Raggedy Ann doll with that calico dress would end up in Lorraine and Ed's museum uh, does not predate the 1970s. And Donna came to believe that the spirit of a little girl named Annabelle lived inside of this doll. Donna and her roommate, Angie, fellow nurse, would come home to find that doll uh, had shifted positions in their little apartment. It, at first, the movements were subtle and confined to the bed where Donna would leave the doll. However, in time, the movements became much more obvious and noticeable. And Donna and Angie began to discover the doll in different rooms. Rooms both swore they never left the doll in. Annabelle would even appear back in Donna's room with the door shut. Sometimes they'd find the doll with its legs crossed and its arms folded, while on occasions it was found standing on its feet, leaning against a dining room chair. They even discovered it kneeling on a chair once, which was super strange because if they tried to make the doll kneel like that on its own, uh, it would just fall over. Couldn't do it. Wasn't built to be able to kneel in the way they found it kneeling. And then the strange little doll transitioned from moving around to communicating. Donna claimed that she would come home to find penciled messages written in childlike writing on parchment paper. The messages read, help us. <laughs> That's terrifying. And help Lou. Lou was Donna's roommate, Angie's uh, fiance, and had been staying with him. What made the messages even stranger was that Donna did not have parchment paper in the apartment and had no idea where it came from. And then things got a little scarier when some blood showed up on Annabelle. Mm. 
Ed and Lorraine Warren claimed that Donna came home from work to find what looked like blood on the back of the doll's hand and three drops of blood on its chest. There was no explanation for how the red substance had gotten there, scared Donna enough to contact a medium who held a seance and introduced Donna and Angie to the spirit of Annabelle, a seven-year-old girl who played in the fields that existed where Donna and Angie's apartment complex now stood. Apparently, Annabelle's lifeless body had been discovered in the field. Out of compassion, Donna and Angie permitted the spirit of Annabelle to stay with them and possess the doll. But maybe the spirit of the, in the doll wasn't some little girl after all. Maybe it was something much worse. Or maybe Annabelle lived alongside something much worse inside the doll. Lou, Donna's fiance, freaked out by Annabelle and warned Donna that it was not harmless. He thought it was evil. And then one night, Lou woke suddenly from a deep sleep and found himself unable to move. And then get ready for goosebumps. He saw a creepy little Annabelle down at his feet and watched frozen and helpless as it slowly glided up his leg, up onto his chest. Before he knew it, the doll began to strangle him and he didn't let go until he blacked out. He woke up the next morning convinced that it was not just a dream, it was a message. And then Annabelle attacked him in a way that made it impossible for him to just write it off as being a dream. Lou and Angie went uh, to Angie's apartment. They were there studying maps to prepare for a little vacation when they heard rustling noises coming from Donna's room. Lou approached the closed door, waited for the noises to stop before entering, turned on the light, saw Annabelle laying on the floor in the corner. He walked over to the doll, and then as he did, he began to feel a powerful sense of dread in the presence of some other entity behind him. Spun around to defend himself, saw no one, but then felt pain in his chest, fell to the floor, found himself doubled over and writhing on the floor, grabbing his chest, which was now bleeding. <clears throat> Excuse me. When he was able to stand up, took off his shirt, and discovered seven claw-like scratches on his chest. <clears throat> Man, excuse me. I think the demon of Annabelle just uh, went into my throat right now. It's feeling crazy. So he found, <laughs> found himself doubled over, writhing on the floor, grabbing his chest, now bleeding. When he was able to stand up, he took off his shirt and discovered seven claw-like scratches on his chest, four horizontal, three vertical, that felt like hot burns. The scratches healed rapidly and were fully gone in two days. You creeped out yet? I am. Annabelle just tried to choke me out in the middle of this uh, introduction. Is any of this shit true? Maybe, maybe not. It's all either uh, first-hand accounts or supposed first-hand accounts chronicled by paranormal investigators and demonologists Ed and Lorraine Warren. Are they full of shit? Perhaps. Some people certainly think so. Or is there a lot more to the world that meets the eye and Ed and Lorraine have seen it? And some of what they have seen is utterly terrifying. Today, we examine the lives of the Warrens, look into some of their scariest tales on a Halloween week spooky edition of Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Time Suckers. Hail Nimrod, hail Lucifina, praise Mother, Michael motherfucking McDonald, Bo Jangles. Hope I'm not going to be fighting that weird feeling in my throat this entire show. That's going to be a real bummer. Uh, I'm Dan Cummins, the Master Sucker, the fourth leg of Bojangles, and you, Cult of the Curious member, are listening to Time Suck, and perhaps watching Time Suck now. More on that in a second. Apologies to Time Sucker Stephen Watson, victim of Hurricane Michael, for not initially posting the link to his GoFundMe campaign in last week's episode description. Uh, it's there now, uh, but it wasn't for anyone who downloaded the episode in, in the first, like, 24, 48 hours. Uh, reposting the link in today's episode description to help he and his family's recovery. And Stephen, check your email uh, from a message, uh, for a message from me. I didn't hear back. Uh, I connected you with John Ryder, another wonderful time sucker who lives near you, who works as a public insurance adjuster. 
Uh, he wants to make sure you don't get fucked over when it comes to insurance on your home. Uh, he just wants to help. I think that's fantastic, man. Hail Nimrod. Hope, hope you're doing better. Uh, thank everyone for the continued reviews. Constant spreading the suck. Uh, appreciate those coming in every day on iTunes and elsewhere. And thanks for getting the new merch and sending in pics to be posted on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, those new tumblers, Lucifina sets, hoodies, more looking so good. So happy with what uh, Danger Brain, Axis Apparel, and uh, Queen of the Suck Lindsay have come up with. Uh, also, the Cult of the Curious private Facebook group, uh, over 4,000 members now. 4,000 really committed members and having a blast in there. So if you want to have some more fun with the suck, hop in there. Love the good times everyone is having. I uh, get a lot of messages lately about listeners enjoying the community aspect of Time Suck. Uh, link to that in today's episode description. Uh, heading to Columbus, Ohio the day after Halloween for shows this weekend. Looking like they're going to be nice and full of suckers. So uh, so get those last tickets. Great times going to be had. Uh, three shows in Columbus, uh, uh, Ohio, Friday and Saturday. Uh, one on Friday, two on Saturday. Um, so let's, uh, let's do it. Helium Comedy Club, Buffalo, New York. Buffalo, New York. Uh, November 8th through 11th, first time uh, in Buffalo that I can remember. And then back to Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, been in Grand Rapids many times. Dr. Grin's November 16th and 17th, including my last live podcast in 2018 on the 17th. And then head only about 30, 40 minutes from the Suck Dungeon to uh, Spokane Comedy Club, November 29th, 30th, December 1st, off to Helium in St. Louis, uh, December 6th to the 9th for the last shows of 2018 after that. And then uh, going to be announcing the uh, first half of 2019 shows uh, in a few weeks. So links to all that in the episode description. And, uh, and love the response to the little previews of video uh, we got this past week. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Suck now lives in video form. Uh, on the Time Suck YouTube channel, we are, we are now yeah, add, adding uh, full-length episodes, uh, video versions of full-length episodes. So if all goes well, this one right here, living on YouTube. Um, yeah, videos will come out you know, either Mondays at noon or a little bit after, just depending on our uh, you know, recording schedule. Obviously, it takes a little bit more production time to get these, to get these up. So you know, probably on occasion, there'll be a few hours after the audio drops everywhere else. Uh, but I have to say, man, I'm really happy with it. First, uh, first trial video, Reverend Dr. Joe. Joe motherfucking Paisley put together. It looks great. And uh, yeah, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Time Suck Podcast for all that. Shout out to, to Jimmy Hill at Amplified Wax in Spokane for designing these, these uh, sound panel backdrops. Man, using the Danger Brain design covers. Looks so good. And thanks for continuing to believe in this project, which allows us to keep developing it uh, further and further, uh, reaching more Time Suckers. You curious meat sacks are the fucking best. And, uh, and thanks to Time Suckers for nominating me. I'm doing a TED Talk coming up in January. A TEDx talk. Still deciding what my angle is going to be on, on the talk. I got a couple of ideas floating around in my head. Uh, it's going to happen January 12, 2019 at the uh, Croc Center right here in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. They got a little theater there. Uh, I'll put a link to their website in the, uh, in the episode description as well. Ticketing site will be available in the next couple of weeks for that. So I'm really looking forward to uh, really thinking hard about what, what has made this fun, why I think this has worked, uh, what it means to me, and putting that message out there uh, to the world in TED, Talks, in TED Talk form. And now for uh, a fun suck, man. Happy happy Halloween time, suckers. Happy Halloween. I'm dressing up as Chicken Joe. You know, not easy to find a fucking chicken head cane, but I did it. I got one in, in the mail, and I got a uh, also not you know easy at last minute to get a uh, disco shoes with uh, like a little goldfish looking thing in the heel. Got that coming. Gonna have a fun costume for uh, posting on Instagram, and Facebook. So let's get paranormal. Oh, let's suck uh, right now into disturbing possibilities of what may go bump in the night. So who were they, Ed and Lorraine Warren? Who are these controversial ghost hunters? Let's look into their lives a little bit before we lay out and examine some of their scarier claims. 
You know, what kind of people become demonologists? Today's timeline is going to be a bit of a shorter one because uh, there's just not a lot known about the Warrens other than the cases of paranormal activity that they wrote about and investigated. So they wrote a lot, just not about themselves. So we'll look at their lives and then we'll bounce out and look into some of their more infamous cases in a lot more depth. Let's get to it. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck timeline. On September 7th, 1926, Edward, Ed Warren Miney, is born in Bridgeport, Connecticut. He's one of two twins to be born that day, born alongside sister Babette Pauline Babe Miney. Ed and Babe would both achieve notoriety and a level of fame before they died. Ed would grow up, you know, to become a famous ghost hunter. And, uh, and Babe would grow up to become uh, one of Bridgeport, Connecticut's best bakers. It's a really cool story. She worked at a Wonder Bread factory and a former co-worker, Elaine Strongsbow. I uh, would later say that Babe was a wizard when it came to sourdough. Uh, Elaine would say in an interview with a, in a little regional trade publication, uh, she said, a lot of us made sourdough and many of us were good at it, but there was something different about Babe. Uh, she didn't like make more bread than anyone else. Uh, because the factory machinery, you know, ensured that the same number of loaves were produced each and every shift. And, you know, and her bread didn't taste any different than anyone else's because, of, the, of course, the, the machinery involved ensured that the exact same ingredients would go into each and every loaf at the factory. And each loaf would be cooked at exactly 400 degrees for uh, exactly 22 minutes. But it was it was the way Babe pushed the dough dispenser button on the sourdough line that, uh, I don't know, just seemed to make her bread taste a, a little better than everyone else's or, 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 you know, like, like at least, at least exactly the same as everyone else's, but you know, but not worse. And so that's, that's pretty cool. That's fucking, that's nonsense. I have no idea what babe did as a kid, uh, or as an adult, or if she's even alive, that would be, that would not exactly be a claim to fame. I do know a little bit about Ed, uh, his parents, 29 year old Frank Edward Miney, police officer and uh 26 year old Pauline Dennis Miney homemaker. He has an older brother, Frank born five years earlier in 1921. Uh, little Ed seemed to have a pretty normal childhood. There are whisperings from his, uh, about his mother being possibly an alcoholic, mostly from his uh, future son-in-law, Tony Sparrow. We'll mention him later on in the show. His dad, you know, I guess was maybe not around a lot due to uh, working long hours. But, you know, no alarming examples of abuse and neglect. And, and, you know, and maybe his mom drank a little bit extra because Ed wouldn't shut the fuck up about ghosts. She couldn't handle little Ed pounding on her door every night, like, talking about the demon or in his room or outside his window, just day after day. Demon this, monster that. He doesn't want to eat a sandwich because a ghost poisoned the bologna. He can't sleep alone in his bed because an old white-eyed demon lady sleeps underneath it. He can't play with his neighbor kids outside because of the ghost of a little boy said he'd strangle Frank if he tried. He won't play with his sister Babe because Babe has been possessed by the previous owner of the home for years. And why won't anyone take him seriously? I have no idea why she drank. But I will say, if Kyler and Monroe just wouldn't shut up about demons and ghosts, I'd probably hit the sauce a little harder. Uh, less than five months after Ed's birth, on January 31st, 1927, Lorraine Rita Moran is born, also in Bridgeport. She grew up just a few miles up the coast from Bridgeport in uh, Mil Milford. The eldest of three children, she'd grow up in a middle-class family. Four years later, 1931, when Ed was five, his family moved into a house that he thought was haunted. He would later reflect, My father, who was a police officer at the time, would often say, Ed... There's a logical reason for everything that happens in this house. And then uh, my dad would just float up to the third floor and, uh, and his eyes would turn white. No, I didn't. That part didn't happen. But he, he, just, he just never came up with that logical reason, Ed said. My, he said my family would go uh, all go to bed and then just around 2 to 3 o'clock in the morning, many times I would hear the closet door beginning to open up. This sounds like little kid imagination. At first, I'd look into the closet and see only shapeless darkness. 
then I'd start to see a light bulb. No, not light, <laughs> not light bulb, sorry. Uh, I'd start to see a light beginning to form and it would morph into like a ball-like shape, sort of like a basketball, and then I'd see a face in the ball. Now, this phenomenon he's describing is known in, in paranormal circles as a uh, ghost globule. And what is a ghost globule? Well, uh, it's defined as a globule of ghostiness. So there you go. Now, that'd be a super shitty definition. Now, according to uh, the minds behind paranormal.lovetoknow.com, a ghost globule is circular in shape, much like a globe, also known as a ghost orb, also known as ghost balls, uh, a.k.a. spook nuts, a.k.a. spirit sack, a.k.a. demon scrot, a.k.a. netherworld nards, a.k.a. poltergeist pecker pillows. AKA haunted hacky sacks. AKA I'm done now. Uh, these balls of light can come in a range of sizes and illumination. Some barely visible, some others uh, brightly glowing. Are these orbs or, or globules or, uh, you know, spirit sacks uh, the exact spirits of the dead? Some people believe so. In fact, people who follow this theory believe that when they see an orb, they're actually viewing a deceased person's soul. There are others who don't believe these spirits are actually individual spirits at all, but instead collections of many spirits all contained within the pulsating light that forms the orb. Still others believe that while these orbs are spirits, they never belong to a human body, believing instead they're evidence of the spiritual side of nature, free agent spirits out there, I guess, looking for a host. Those who believe that these uh, spheres are, have ghostly origins believe that uh, an orb in the, in, in the form of a spirit, in the form of, takes, I don't know, uh, I, I don't know what I'm trying to say there. What did, I, what did I write in my notes? Those who believe that these spheres have ghostly origins believe that an orb is the form a spirit takes on. There it goes. As it moves about. Okay. Why a circle? Well, there are various reasons associated with the belief that a globe or an orb uh, can house a spirit. Like uh, one would be a, a circle encloses a spirit. Two, a circle can house more than one spirit. Three, it is easy for a circle or orb to travel. <laughs> okay. Uh, four, the circle is a common shape associated with nature, such as the moon and the sun. And five, the circle represents eternity, which is forever for the soul. Uh, uh, some people believe that the ghost wanted a triangle. But that shape was taken by the Illuminati. Oh, people probably don't believe that. Okay, so that's a globule. Uh, okay, you know I haven't I haven't seen one, but the, you know a lot of people think they have. Make, make it that what you will. Mumbo jumbo to many, but others believe uh, you know these in these orbs with all their heart. And here's Ed's description of the globule. He thought he saw when he was a little kid. He says in that globule was a face, the face of an old woman, and she was not looking at all pleasant. That's fun. Uh, the globule would then come out into my bedroom accompanied by audible footsteps and heavy breathing. The room would then become icy cold, an unnatural cold, a psychic cold. And I'm saying to myself, Ed, there's a logical reason for everything. But by that time, I was out of the bed and right in between my mom and dad in their bed. So, you know, from an early age, Ed Warren's thinking more about ghosts than the average kid. And, uh, and annoying the shit out of his parents. So maybe that really was the reason his mom drank. 1939, when Lorraine is 12, she began to develop an interest in the paranormal as well. Uh, these two were made for each other, man. Uh, she, uh, they actually did have, um, whether they were full of shit or not, a pretty special relationship. Uh, when Lorraine was 12, she would see lights around people at the private Catholic schools, uh, Catholic girls' school she attended. This is the beginnings of her clairvoyant and psychic abilities. She'd later say, I confided in one of my nuns, my French teacher. I told her that her lights were much brighter than Mother Superior's. I just assumed others could see them too. The sister, uh, she told this to, told her to stop saying fanciful stuff. Uh, and the school packed her off to a retreat home for a weekend where she was not allowed to talk or play, only pray. After returning, uh, returning from this uh, retreat home, 
Lorraine said she was uh, worried that my what my parents would think or what the nuns would think. I never wanted to be different. I always wanted to fit in, so I just tried to not deny what I could see even to myself. Now, I often think when people are making these kind of claims, you know, like, I think, A, they're probably full of shit. Total honesty. A, uh-uh, don't buy it. But then I do think, B, how terrible would it be if that actually was true? Like, if that was your life. Like, can you imagine you started seeing, like, uh, you know, creepy old ladies' faces and fucking orbs floating around, like, for real, you know? Like, you go to a, you go to a therapist. Uh, they can't find anything, you know, wrong psychologically. You, you go through a, a battery of, you know, of tests at the hospital. You get CAT scans, everything. They, there's nothing, uh, nothing wrong with your wires, you know? Nothing wrong with your chemistry. But just like The Sixth Sense, like that old movie, you see dead people. What a curse that would be, right? You can't turn that ability off. Uh, man, what a terrible burden. Like, I feel like if your mind was sound when you began to see dead people, it, it wouldn't stay sound for very long. Like, you would you would become a nut. You'd become, you know, uh, a nutty kind of person that I make fun of on the show. And I'm like, ha, ah, what, a, what a weirdo. But what if they really are dealing with that? Oh, man. No, thank you. Please don't let me become one of those people. Ah, oh, man, I guess if they weren't hurting you, maybe you'd acclimate somewhat over time. But shit, just be gone, Lucifina. Get away from me with your with your ghost vision. <sighs> in either late 1942 or early 1943, when Ed Warren was 16 years old, working as an usher at the no longer in existence Colonial Theater in Bridgeport, Connecticut, he met Lorraine Rita Moran. Uh, Lorraine and her mother used to come every Wednesday night. Ed remembered he'd say, I'd see Lorraine coming in and we started talking and we became friends. I was 16 at the time and so was she. And one night I walked her home and asked her on a date. And that's how it all started. How adorable. And here's what Lorraine had to say of her first impression of Ed. She said, I looked at his shoes, which were shined to perfection. And I looked at the crease of his trousers and I thought, what a nice young man he was. How sweet is that shit? Uh, a little bit different than I feel like many of the stories of today's relationships. Uh, I don't think would would have that kind of sentimental, oh, mm, feel, you know. More like, uh, I swiped right, and so did he. And we hooked up every once in a while, became friends with benefits. And then we were both hooking up with other people, you know. And we just realized that, like, you know, uh, we liked hooking up with other people, but we liked kind of, you know, hooking up with each other more. And I don't want to get, like, herpes or something. So we kind of just started, like, fucking each other, you know, like. And shit just kind of went from there. And, like, he was nice. And sometimes he would, like, order pizza for me after we banged a few times. And, like, no guy had ever done that for me. <laughs> like, I feel like that's more of the typical today's uh, start of a relationship. 1944, 17-year-old Ed joined the Navy. Four months after enlisting, he sh his ship sank in the North Atlantic. Luckily, he didn't sink on it. And he was sent home for 30-day survivor's leave. And it was during that leave that he and Lorraine got married. Just a couple kids, madly in love, making big plans for the future. 1946, shortly after Ed returned home from World War II, uh, he and Lorraine have a daughter, Judy, who will be their only child. Judy is now a, por a paranormal investig investigator herself, uh, carrying the torch for her parents. Ed also enrolled in Perry Art School, a subsidiary of Yale, or subsidiary, that's probably a real word, of Yale, and studied there for about two years. And the two quickly began investigating uh, hauntings around this time as well. After the war, Ed would read news stories of hauntings around the country, and then he would show up at these places uh, that were close by, and he'd paint the houses he'd read about in the reports, and then use these paintings as a way to introduce himself to the owners of the home. He'd say, uh, you know, he wanted to see if the same people, uh, or he wanted to see if the same things he had seen and heard as a kid were happening to other people. Uh, Lorraine would later explain. Ed would later say, we were just kids. Nobody was just going to let us in. Uh, we were curiosity seekers. We were not yet the directors of the New England Society for uh, Psychic Research. I'd go out in the middle of the road, 
where they could all see me and I'd start sketching the house and you could, and you'd see the curtains going back and forth. Like, what's this kid's doing? They'd be thinking. I would do a really nice sketch of the house with ghosts coming out of it and I'd give it to Lorraine. She'd go knock on the door and with her Irish personality, she'd say, oh, my husband loves to sketch and paint haunted houses and he made this for you. I made it special for them. And, you know, and, and then that's kind of what endeared them to these owners and got them to, uh, to be able to investigate their homes. Ed said he applied the police investigation methods he'd learned from his dad to paranormal investigations, asking questions, taking notes. Lorraine would work entirely on instinct, saying uh, everything came naturally to me. She says, I would never uh, get them to let me go around the house on my own without any prior knowledge of what they'd experienced uh, to see what I discerned. And I would sit on the bed where people spend a third of their life. That's where you get the best vibrations and names and visions would come to me. Uh, Ed also began to pay the, start paying the bills with his paintings. Started in 1948. He said he got fed up with school, telling Lorraine one day, you know, I can paint better than these instructors. What they're teaching me is a lot of geometry, a lot of nonsense. I don't need for painting. He bought a car for 15 bucks, 1933 Chevy Eagle Deluxe, saying the guy gave me two wheels with it. I had to pay him off on, a, on time, $5 a week. I said to Lorraine, you know, if we go up to the new areas where they're opening up for tourists like Massachusetts, Vermont, New Hampshire, I bet I can take a bunch of paintings and put them where people are walking by and we'll sell some. And they did sell some and they made good money. According to Ed, they made a fantastic living, allowed them to uh, do their paranormal investigations. You know, selling paintings anywhere from uh, three to five bucks a piece in an age when uh, hot dogs were a dime, hamburgers are a dime, the theater is a quarter, gas is 18 cents a gallon. You know, they're selling those kind of several of those paintings for three, four, five bucks a day, uh, paid all your bills and then some. So within a few years, the Warrens' interest in haunted houses had become an obsession, and they opened the occult museum out of the back of their house. It contained an ever-expanding collection of knickknacks and artifacts that all had supposedly been touched or possessed by something evil. Uh, 1952, uh, the Warrens also founded the New England Society for Psychic Research, the first official organization of ghost hunters in New England. And, and what had the Warrens learned about ghosts so far? Well, here's what Ed would have to say in The Demonologist, the extraordinary career of Ed and Lorraine Warren, a book about them first published in 1980. He'd say, most people seem to think ghosts lurk around in the upstairs of old homes in a misty, vaporous state. That is not so. In order to be seen with the physical eye, the ghost or apparition needs physical energy to manifest. We learn there are two basic processes a human spirit can go through to bring about its own materialization. One uh, way requires a human presence, the other does not. When an earthbound spirit needs a human presence to manifest, then it engages in a complex process of energy transference to give itself substance. And when uh, and the atom's rib of most ghostly manifestations is nothing other than human aura. Surrounding the body of every living being is a bioluminescent glow caused by natural discharge of energy from the body. Clairvoyants like Lorraine can see and read the human aura, which appears in three layers, reflecting the physical, emotional, and spiritual status of the person. Spirits read auras too, and an individual's aura may either repel or attract a spirit presence. Oh man, I got, I got one of those repellent auras, just repelling ghosts away left and right. Hopefully, I, sometimes when it's dark, I get a little worried that I don't have the right kind of aura, I guess, you know, whatever an aura, if the aura is real. <laughs> but anyway, uh, uh, spirits read auras too, yeah. Uh, nevertheless, from the bioluminescent glow or aura, the ghost draws small amounts of energy which collect uh, as an orb or else as small pinpoints of light, this light energy combined with heat and electromagnetic energy in the room is what the human spirit uses to manifest. Uh, Lorraine would give a simpler explanation saying, imagine you're staying overnight in your friend's house. The place is nice and cheerful, uh, so nice and cheerful that the thought of a ghost would never enter your mind. And that night, you're shown to the guest room and uh, in a little while, you're sound asleep. 
Sometime in the middle of the night, you wake up. Perhaps a spirit has psychically projected the sound of breaking glass or the slamming of a door to get your attention. Sitting up in bed, you have an eerie feeling. You know something's not right. Glancing around the dark room, you see two bluish orbs of light, roughly the size of golf balls, floating near each other about five feet off the floor. As you watch, you might also see streaks of light flash away from your body. This is the electromagnetic energy being drawn from your aura. In no time at all, these two balls of light come together and merge into one larger ball about the size of a grapefruit. Grapefruit. The ball with, will then elongate into a cigar shape, uh, you know, about human size and height. Within this tall, bioluminescent glow, the definable features of a person will begin to emerge until the spirit has manifested as much as it possibly can. To be accurate, by the way, it's called a ghost if the features are not recognizable to the viewer. If the features are recognizable to the viewer, it's an apparition. Either way, you've got a visitor. Has that happened to anybody listening? You've seen the, like these little ghost balls? You've seen those spirit nuts kind of floating around, and then they merge together into a cigar-shaped I mean, I mean, if you have, send it in. I just, I have, I have not. Uh, I'd be curious if anyone listening has seen that. The other way a ghost will come up, uh, Ed explained, is a bit theatrical. On very humid days with a lot of rain or fog, or on stormy nights when there was electrical energy in the air from lightning discharges, a ghost is able to build itself from the energy in the atmosphere. When a ghost or apparition manifests in this way, there tends to be an intense smell of ozone in the room, and the resulting materialization comes across with a bluish glow. The spirit is liable to manifest before you, or aware of its presence, or as you watch. The important point is that uh, in one case, the spirit requires a human presence to materialize, while in the other, only Mother Nature is needed. But a ghost certainly does not have to manifest in order to be there because it is not intrinsically a material entity. The ghost will already be there and manifest simply to verify its presence to those in the physical realm. So there you go. That's Ed and Lorraine's uh, theory as to why they were able to see many, many ghosts they'd claimed to witness over the roughly five decades they'd spend pursuing the paranormal. For a little over the first decade of the uh, New England Society of Psychic Research, or for Psychic Research, the goal of the Warrens was only to investigate and document hauntings. But then in 1965, the Warrens wanted to help the victims of hauntings. This urge started to help with the spirit of a little girl named Cynthia. Around 1965, the Warrens went into a home where they encountered the spirit of Cynthia and they listened to the little child coming through a deep trance medium, as one does, uh, saying she was looking for her mother. Ed thought to himself, this is horrible. This little child is earthbound. She's looking for her mother constantly day in and day out. How do I help this child? So to find out how to help, Ed started interviewing dozens of clergymen of all faiths, asking them, if somebody called you from your parish and said there was a ghost in the house, what would you do? Some would say, I told them to see a psychiatrist. Others would say, I'd go to the house and I'd bless it. If the blessing didn't work, I'd say a mass. And if the mass didn't work, I'd perform the right kind of exorcism. So then Ed also began to work with non-religious people whose services uh, he thought would be valuable. Uh, medical doctors, researchers, uh, police officers, nurses, college students, etc., uh, all began to uh, volunteer their services. For almost a year, the Warrens even worked with the ventriloquist, finding that some ghosts and demons could be tricked into believing they were speaking to a fellow spirit instead of a human if the ventriloquist was talented enough. Uh, Charles Gutman, a ventriloquist exactly that talented from nearby New Haven, would accompany the Warrens with uh, Woody, a <laughs> uh, 30-inch, okay, uh, hand-carved doll in cowboy clothes to convince several reluctant spirits to come out of hiding. <laughs> yeah, right. I just made it up about the, about the ventriloquist. Can you imagine? Uh, how great would that be if on some paranormal show, some spectral ventriloquist showed up uh, as a character with like some puppet named Woody <laughs> claiming that Woody could convince ghosts to talk to him? Just, oh, my God. I would love to see that. Ah, ghost, it's me, Woody. Look at this dumb human Charles I've made fall asleep. What a dope. 
I'm using this oral energy to possess this silly cowboy doll. But really, I'm a ghost or a demon thing, just like you. So how would you come out and join me? We could possess more dolls. We could open a portal to hell. Wee! Wouldn't that be fun? We could do stuff like throw kids downstairs, spin people's heads around, scare dogs and cats, turn crosses upside down, speak in demon voices. Wouldn't that freak him out? Ha ha ha! Neato! Come on, ghost, come out and talk to me. I'm Woody. I'm definitely not Charles. I'm a 100% ghost or demon. Let's get to hunting. It'll be sweet. Wee! Please, please show up somewhere in the show. Please, someone out there in the world, be a ventriloquist demon hunter. Please make Hollywood, dear Hollywood, get going in that movie now. Thank you. Uh, recover <laughs> regarding covering all his bases and in investigation. Ed would say that people would laugh him off with, "Oh God, you go into a house and look for devils." And Ed's response would be, "You're damn right, I look for devils, and I look for everything else too." I have the scientists with me, and they're looking for something else. And we get together, and we talk, and we straighten the whole thing out. Nobody can bring us into a house and fool us. You couldn't tell us that your house is haunted and get away with it, because I'm the biggest skeptic going. I have to see it. I have to hear it, and I have to feel it with a physical sense. Uh, here are some more of Ed's thoughts on his and Lorraine's approach to paranormal investigations. He says, uh, many times we'd use three or four clairvoyants in one place. We'd take them to a house one at a time, and they don't know where they're going, what the case is about. Etc. They don't know shit. And if they uh, all tell me the same thing, if they see a woman's spirit in a certain room or a man or a child, then I know we're on the right track. I mean, that actually, that actually would be a good way to do it if he's being legit here. Uh, I guess I should define clairvoyant really quick, by the way. We've mentioned a few times. A clairvoyant is a ventriloquist who speaks to the dead with a woody. No. Uh, clairvoyant is a person who claims to have a supernatural ability to perceive events in the future or beyond normal sensory contact. As in, Someone who could you know, sense and communicate with spirits. Ed would claim over and over before his death that there was no doubt about the existence of the paranormal, saying, In our occult museum, we have hundreds of items. We have thousands of cases between here and the other buildings out there that prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the supernatural exists. We have filmed the White Lady of Easton. We have filmed poltergeist attacks on people, ghosts, and we have taken many pictures of ghosts. I'll talk more about this later. Uh, we have thousands of pictures of ghosts. And I'm not talking about filmy ectoplasma type material. I'm talking. I'm talking about spirits. I'm talking about practice. Oh, so, wait, that's not the right uh, Iverson. I'm not talking about the game. No, I'm talking about spirits that are as clear as you and I. You ask for evidence, we'll give you that evidence. We proved in a court of law in 1989 that a woman and her uh, young child were driven out of the house by ghosts. She lived in uh, Hebron, Connecticut. We went to Rockville Court and we won the case. The realtor. Leased us the house, was suing her for $2,000. She begged us to go into the house and get some evidence that would prove that there really are ghosts. Now, you don't walk into a court of law and say, well, judge, there was ghosts there. You have to have evidence. In any court of law, they use photographs, recordings, credible witnesses as evidence. That's what we use. We won the case. We set a precedent here in the United States. Scientists would say, you didn't prove a thing because you didn't take a ghost and put it in a bottle so we can open them up and examine them. That's stupid. That's saying uh, that scientifically, you have to have prove that God exists. No, ghosts, ghosts exist. There is no such thing you can't get, uh, whatever, scientific and a supernatural. I don't know what he's saying. Uh, so if you have to prove in a court of law that ghosts exist and haunted house exists, I think that's good enough for anyone. So he's making this point that he proved in a court of law that ghosts exist. Let's, I, I looked into that. I couldn't find anything in the, in the demonologist about that, uh, about that particular case. But there is a, another case from 1991. Yeah, so I couldn't find the one he was talking about, which, you know, 
makes me a little skeptical. Uh, but I, th- I think maybe he was talking about this. I don't know. Maybe he got, sometimes he would get, get the years off. In 1991, there is this thing known as the Ghostbusters ruling. Uh, not making this up. Legally known as Stan Bavosky, uh versus Ackley. Fucking somebody, of course, it's a Polish person. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you guess it? Uh, old, the old Stan Bosky, old ski. Polish people causing trouble again here in the suck. Uh, no, this case centered around Hel- uh, Helen Ackley reporting the existence of numerous poltergeists in her home in Nyack, New York, between 1977 and 1989. Stories of the hauntings in the Ackley home uh, were reported in newspapers across the country, Reader's Digest, elsewhere. And then in 1980, a man named Jeffrey Stambovsky purchased the home, uh, and then neither uh, Helen Ackley or, or, or her realtor told him about the hauntings. And then after he moved in, he found out about the hauntings. He took Helen to court and wanted his money back. Initial court dismissed his claim, but he appealed, and he eventually got a ruling in his favor. And the ruling said, uh, whereas here, the seller not only takes unfair advantage of the buyer's ignorance, but has created and perpetuated a condition about which he is unlikely to even inquire. Enforcement of the contract in whole or in part is offensive to the court's sense of equity. Application of the remedy of rescission uh, within the bounds of narrow exception to the doctrine of caveat emptor set forth herein is entirely appropriate to relieve the unwitting purchaser from the consequences of a most unnatural bargain. Oh, legal language. Ah, yeah, fun. Uh, what they're saying here is that uh, they deceived him. They're not saying that like ghosts lived in the home. They're saying that they talked a lot about ghosts, made this house infamous as far as supposedly being a haunted house, and then didn't tell that to the buyer. Uh, that would be the best if the judge actually ruled that ghosts were for sure a problem in the house. The state of New York rules for the plaintiff. The defendant acted in an unlawful manner when they failed to reveal that the demon Baphomet does in fact occasionally reside at the corner of Oak Grove Lane and Freemason Court. Uh, Baphomet, uh, this particular demon, has for sure killed at least 10 kids in the past two years and thus the defendant recklessly endangered the plaintiff's children's lives by not closing that uh, Baphomet is 100% real and for sure lives in the root cellar somewhere behind the furnace. Several ghosts also, uh, one named Lizzie, one named Catherine, another named David Parker, also for sure are doing creepy evil shit in the attic. Not cool, defendant. Not cool. No, the court is just, uh, it's not saying ghosts live in the home. What it's saying is that, you know, like I said, you can't publicly build up this reputation for a home as being like a haunted house and having all these horrible things happen uh, inside it to the point that it becomes kind of nationally known, almost as like a tourist attraction, and then sell that to somebody and just never mention that. Because that affects, you know, uh, people fucking bothering them all the time. Could affect the value of the home. Other people might not want to buy it because it's, you know, they think it's think it's super creepy. That's what they said. Anyway, the Warrens would uh, research hundreds of cases over the years. They traveled the world, giving lectures on the paranormal. Uh, and towards the end of Ed's life, they'd write a number of books on what they say they've witnessed. You know, the Annabelle case I spoke of uh, to start today's tale uh, apparently occurred in 1968. And the horror films Annabelle and Annabelle Creation based on that haunting uh, 1971, uh, the Warrens went to Harrisville, Rhode Island to investigate the claims of the Perrin family who believed their home was haunted by a witch. The Warrens would claim that the witch named uh, Bathsheba Sherman cursed the land so that whoever lived there would somehow die. And this story would become the plot of 2013's The Conjuring. Bathsheba, that does sound like a witch's name. Like if you're a witch, you can't just call yourself like Teresa, Bethany. No, if you want people to fear you, you got to switch it up. got to call yourself Bathsheba, Bladusa, Malevolencia, something dark and foreboding. Uh, we, we'll talk about this haunting uh, at length later in this suck. 1976, the Warrens investigated the Amityville horror case that we already looked into in bonus suck 11. 
1977, the Warrens investigated claims that a family in North the, the North London suburb of Enfield were haunted by a poltergeist, some kind of poltergeist activity. This haunting would later become the basis for the film The Conjuring 2. I need to see that movie. I heard it was good. Uh, Jesse Dobner, our editor, says it was better than the first one. I loved the first one. Uh, I would have watched it last night, but I was alone in my house, and I'm a scaredy cat, okay? I swear, I'm still nervous about uh, going down in my basement ever since the fucking Shadow Person episode. Shadow people, why, did, why does that have to maybe exist? Creepy. 1971, Arnie Johnson, or Arn Johnson, one of those weird names, accused of killing his landlord, Alan Bono. Ed and Lorraine Warren had been called prior to the killing to, the, uh, to deal with alleged demonic possession of the younger brother of Jonathan's fiance. The Warrens subsequently claimed that Johnson had also been possessed and that at trial, Johnson attempted to plead not guilty by reason of demonic possession, but was unsuccessful with that plea. That was, that was too far. The case was described in the 1983 book, The Devil in uh, Connecticut. And again, can you imagine if you did get off because of that? I, I rule in favor of the defendant. Uh, he couldn't help what he did because uh, he was... Uh, he was possessed by a demon. Baphomet and taken over his, his, his spirit. 1986, Ed and Lorraine Warren arrived and proclaimed the Sneedeker House, a formal funeral home, uh, was infested with demons. 2009 film, uh, The Haunting in Connecticut, is very loosely based on the Warren's version of what happened in that house. We'll dive into this case in depth later. Apparently, it involves actually getting raped by demons. <sighs> That's to be the worst kind of demon, the rapey kind, you know? I mean, if you end up getting haunted... You know, having the ghost of like Richard Ramirez or some other rapist, uh, the worst. Next to a murdering ghost. A raping and murdering ghost? That's that's probably the very worst. I can't even imagine how crazy I would go if a ghost raped me. Like, holy shit. Not being able to defend yourself. You can't even see it coming. Just some fucking spirit wing coming for your orifices at all times. I mean, what could you do? Well, you know what? I'll tell you exactly what you could do. You could get a hold of today's first sponsor. Today's Time Suck is brought to you today by Woody's Paranormal Rape Repellent. Hi, guys. It's me, Woody. Tired of spooky spirits poking around your pooper? Sick of sexually excited entities hanging around your hoo-ha? Well, worry no more. All you need to get those ghosts to stop pushing and poking on your fun bits is a can of Woody's Paranormal Rape Repellent. Spray it on your bottom. Spray it on your front bottom. Spray it on your chest boobs. And spray it anywhere else the spectral sperm cannons are trying to dump demon babies on. Whee! Our special blend of garlic, paprika, holy water, wasabi, icy hot, sea salt, green tea, sulfuric acid, graham cracker crumbs will turn your private parts into a spook slaughterhouse. Of course, that's not today's sponsor. That's a hard voice to do for a prolonged period of time. I feel like I was going to pass out there. Uh, Time Suck is actually brought to you by Kingpins, a new podcast from the Parcast Podcast Network. If you're a fan of Time Suck, you probably enjoy true crime tales uh, that shine a little light on the darkest corners of humankind. That's why you'll love Kingpins, a new podcast from Parcast that takes a deep dive into the minds and stories of the men and women who call the shots in the crime world. Through extensive research, each episode of Kingpins explores the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to determine what kind of person is drawn to the world of organized crime, as well as what it takes for a kingpin or queenpin to rise to the top, and why they eventually fall. Uh, episodes on Frank Lucas and Richard the Iceman Kuklinski, available right now. Uh, been a while since we covered uh, the Iceman on Time Suck, so perfect time to jump back in, revisit that East Coast monster from a new perspective. And Frank Lucas is the 60s and 70s Harlem kingpin that Denzel Washington uh, played in 2007 uh, as American Gangster. Learn about the life 
uh, of the real of the real character, Frank Lucas, that led to that movie by listening to Kingpins. Upcoming episodes on Pablo Escobar, Freeway Rick Ross, Queenie St. Clair. Hell yeah. Uh, releasing every Friday. Great additional content for those of you who also love that Escobar suck we did a while back. So just search for Kingpins wherever you listen to podcasts, and that's K-I-N-G-P-I-N-S, or visit parcast.com slash kingpins to start listening now. That's parcast, P-A-R-C-A-S-T, dot com slash kingpins to listen now. Link in today's episode description. Make it real easy. And now on to the rest of the lives of demonologist Ed and Lorraine Warren. 1991, the Warrens published a book titled Werewolf. The true story of demonic possession in which they claim to have exercised a demon manifesting itself as a werewolf. Uh, dude, we're going to look into that for sure uh, later on after the timeline. Demonic werewolf? Okay. All right. I'm curious. I'm listening. You got me. You got me. Uh, 1992, Ed Warren published a book titled Graveyard, True Hauntings from an Old New England Cemetery that features a white lady ghost which haunts Union Cemetery in Easton, Connecticut. Claims to have captured her essence on film. We'll dig into that one a little bit later. Uh, health problems prevented Ed from actively investigating new cases beginning in 1996. The Warrens continued to run a small museum out of their home that is sadly not currently open any longer due to a change in zoning regulations. Boo! Come on, City Hall. You can't make exceptions for some demonologists. It's not like they're running a bagel shop, sewing supply store. It's way cooler than that. And you're ruining it for everyone with your red tape. Uh, March 2001, Ed woke up at 2, uh, 2 a.m., to let a cat in and collapsed on the floor. Paramedics restarted his heart. He was in a coma for 11 weeks, never regained his ability to speak. However, he would uh, come out of it and live for another five years. Fucking demon cat got him. Baphomet. Mm-hmm. Snuck into a cat body. And that's exactly why I don't have cats. Because I don't like little demon critters. I don't like how they try to kill you or put some kind of dark wizard coma sleep spell on you. And then on uh, August 23rd, 2006, Ed passed away in Monroe, Monroe, uh, Monroe, Connecticut at the age of 79. He and Lorraine have been married for almost 62 years. That's incredible. You don't read a lot about uh, about a lot of uh, 60 plus year marriages. My God. And then for years after his death until just recently, his wife Lorraine continued to work with and lead the New England Society for Psychic Research, the organization currently run by their son-in-law, Tony Spira. And daughter Judy, you can find Tony all over YouTube thanks to Paranormal Cable Access Show he hosted for years where he had numerous interviews with Ed and Lorraine. I actually emailed back and forth with uh, Tony this past weekend. He assures me they are actively still investigating hauntings and carrying on Ed and Lorraine's legacy. And he seems like a nice dude. Uh, Lorraine worked as a consultant on a number of blockbuster horror films in the years after Ed's death, such as The Conjuring, The Conjuring 2, Annabelle and Annabelle Creation. Together, those four films grossed over a billion dollars worldwide at just the box office. With more movies in development, such as The Conjuring 3, it's a shame uh, Ed did not live to see the immense success of the Hollywood version of their tales. Uh, Some think that a movie slated currently for 2021 may end up being the biggest financial hit to date based on the tales of Ed and Lorraine Warren. Its working title is Silent Lips, the story of Woody. (laughs) Silent Lips, the story of Woody. Puppet Demon Hunter. Hello, Baphomet. It's me, Woody. I'm glad you decided to come and play. Hey, how about follow me in this coffin? It's definitely not a lead-lined priest-blessed prison to trap your soul forever. Wee. <laughs> ah, sorry. That's probably more fun for me to do than for you to hear. And that's, clear, that's clearly not true. Nine-year-old Lorraine uh, is still with us. Uh, she suffers from memory problems. 
and has a few relatives who act as caregivers to help her out. And she lives in a, in a, in the home, uh, Ed and she shared in Connecticut. They're still attached to the no longer operational occult museum, a museum that houses Annabelle and alleged vampires coffin, a child's tombstone, which is said to be used as a satanic altar, uh, death curses, demon masks, a variety of other cursed dolls, large statue of state, Satan, and more. I'm guessing, I'm guessing the neighborhood, kid, uh, neighborhood kids don't come around and bother her too much. With all that stuff in the back of the house. And uh, and that all takes us out of today's Time Suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. Now that we know a bit about the life of those uh, demonologists, let's look into the claims that made the Warrens famous. Uh, and what a cool and weird job title, by the way, demonologist. Just, I'm, I'm sorry, what, what did you say you do to do? Uh, we're demonologists. Optometrists? We're demonologists. Ast- astrologists? Uh, demonologists. We work with demons ag- against them. We fight against demons. Huh. Is that, is that a good job? Is that a... Uh, what, what kind of benefits? You get, you get a paid vacation? You get match, matching 401k when you're a demonologist? Uh, let, let's get to that demon werewolf case first. Uh, I want to lead with this one because it's, it's the least scary to me of the tales. It's a bit silly, but very entertaining. And, and I guess if it is true, I mean, this would, this would, by, would be terrifying. I had not heard of this one before today, but there, there are rumors that this Warren case is going to be the one reimagined for the upcoming Conjuring 3 film, currently slated for summer 2019, <clears throat> excuse me, around uh, 1959, when Bill Ramsey, just a normal, imaginative nine-year-old boy playing in the backyard of his parents' house in London, he allegedly did something that freaked his parents the fuck out. According to Bill, He's playing outside when he was suddenly caught by a sensation of coldness running down his entire body in a foul, nauseating odor. And then everything seemed normal again for a moment until he felt his body temperature drop once more and suddenly pictures of himself as a wolf flashed through his mind. Then he was filled with an overpowering rage, fell to the ground. When he got back up, he suddenly directed all his new bestial anger towards a fence post that he had violently uprooted from the ground. His parents uh, ran towards him, uh, you know, by this time, and, and then, they're watching, then they watched him, like, slam this fence post around on the ground, brutally tear at the wired fence uh, with his hands and teeth, biting it, growling like an angry wolf. Supposedly, his parents fled in terror uh, at this, went back to the house and just waited until this little episode was over. But I'm like, really? Who's running for, from a nine-year-old? Like, if that's true, his rage must have really been just otherworldly. Uh, or they were super, super shitty parents, because I just, I just can't imagine Kyler Monroe Scaring me back into the house by acting feral uh, or appearing to actually be feral. You know, I was like, bite, bite me and I, I w- bite me. I'll take away your PlayStation. Is that you want? Stop growling or no Fortnite. Stop growling over Monroe. I will, I will throw all of your slime making bullshit away. If you don't stop fucking chewing on the goddamn fence. Stop chewing on the fence. Get in the house. Uh, after a little, little fence chewing. The rage slowly faded away. Bill's parents made sure he was okay. Bill's normal life uh, returned. He grew up, got married, had a, uh, had a daughter slash puppy, uh, earned a living as a carpenter, probably nibbled on a two-by-four from time to time, probably real good at demolition work. And the life was fine for Bill until one day in early 1983, he was out drinking with a group of friends. This is so crazy if this, is, if this really happened. <laughs> He's out drinking with a group of friends. He claims he felt a sudden rush of icy cold and sweat, similar to what he'd experienced as a child with the whole fence incident. Uh, feeling ill, he goes to the restroom, says that when he looks in the mirror, he sees a wolf looking back at him, just a wolf face staring back at him in the mirror. Uh, he has to be taken home. He's riding in the car with his friends. Uh, he's reportedly overcome with an irresistible rage that took over his body. 
lost control of himself, began to snarl wildly, turn into his friend next to him, attempts to bite his friend's leg. The driver of the car able to pull over, after which they all struggled to restrain Bill and get him under control. A feat that took several of them working together since he seemed to be displaying a freakish amount of strength. Bill would eventually come back to his senses, making the end of a very strange, very awkward evening with friends uh, who I imagine didn't invite Bill uh, out as much after that. And he would later say he remembered nothing of this odd event. If one of your friends wolfed out, uh, bit you in the car uh, after you and some others had been drinking, like, would you ever go drinking with them ever again? I mean, if they really, really bit you, like draw blood, you know, like maybe you have to go to the uh, uh, urgent, urgent care, maybe even ER. And then they're growling, acting, acting crazy for a while after that. And then the next day, they act like it never happened. I don't, I don't, there's no way. There's no way I'm hanging out with that person anymore. Hey, so what are you guys drinking tonight? Ah, we're, uh, we're not, Bill. We're not. Come on, guys. Come on. It's Friday night. Which pub are you hitting? Uh, Elephant Castle, McCurdy's, uh, Meadville Brewery, uh, TJ Fridays. Come on. <sighs> look, look, Bill. Me and the guys are, are heading out, but we would, we would really prefer it if you did not join us this time. Ha! Are you serious, Ed? What? Oh, what? Is this, is this about, is this about last weekend? Is this about when I bit you? Is this about, I apologize. I told you. I told you I don't, I don't know what happened. I do know what happened. Bill, you bit my goddamn leg. 13 stitches. Rabies shot. You ruined my favorite pair of pre-pants. That's what happened, Bill. Come on, Ted. Just give me another chance. I got my, I got my conceal and carry permit, Bill. And if you bite me, I swear to God, I will fucking put you down. I will put you down. You want to come hang out with us? That's fine. I'm keeping my gun on my hip, and I'll put you down like a goddamn animal you are, Bill. I don't know. Maybe that was a bit much. Then on the night of Monday, December 5th, 1983, uh, Bill does wolf out again. Just like, this time, not with his buddies. Of course not. He was alone. Of course he's alone. He's a fucking wolf dude. People don't want to hang out with wolf dude. Uh, suddenly, tremendous pain breaks out in the middle of his chest. His entire body covered in a cold sweat. His breath becomes irregular. He's rushed towards this, uh, the nearby South End Hospital. He feels a pain searing in his chest and his right arm as he parks his car and staggers out towards the emergency room entrance, pushes the door open. Two nurses scurry towards him. They help him onto a gurney as the pain and the feeling of his body temperature dropping intensifies. Then as they're pushing the gurney through the hospital corridor, uh, he lets out a primal roar. Then another, the nurses jump back with fear, but they don't jump back fast enough because in full werewolf mode now, but without the fur and, you know, looking like a werewolf, uh, he gets a hold of a nurse's arm, bites her near the elbow hard enough to have blood drip, uh, you know, down her arm. The other nurse yells for help. Young policeman on regular rounds near the emergency room rushes over to help. And then the officer, with the help of a hospital intern, uh, able to force Bill onto the gurney and pin him down with restraining straps. And then Bill passes out. And then he regains consciousness inside the ambulance, take him to a Runwell Mental Hospital with no memory of going full wolf dude. After he's released, I imagine uh, probably charged with some type of assault, I would think, turns himself into the police, asking to be locked up because he's worried he'll lose control again and hurt someone else. And then he wolfs out at the police precinct when they're not taking him seriously, attacks an officer, has to be sedated and put into a cell. Before uh, attacking the officer, this guy watching this interview, a sergeant named uh, Terry Fisher, he said in this like crazy demon wolf voice, the devil is in me. And when the devil is in me, I am strong. I am going to kill you. I am strong and you are going to die. So that's fun for the police officers working there. And then he's committed to a psychiatric facility after being released from jail. Of course. Uh, word of these wolf men, uh, wolf man incidents, make it onto some television or make it uh, 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 some television producers become aware of it. And they, and they put the uh, case of Bill Ramsey 
and the hospital episode on an episode of the American TV show uh, named Incredible Sunday, which was a reboot of the series That's Incredible, uh, hosted by John Davidson. He's, he's a guy, if, if you don't know the name, if you saw him, you be like, oh, yeah, that guy. Uh, if you know, if you're over the age of 30, for sure. If you're under, maybe on YouTube, you've seen some old clips because he hosted Hollywood Squares, $10,000 Pyramid, ton of other TV shows. Uh, Incredible Sunday kind of had the vibe of like Ripley's Believe It or Not is about the strange, unusual, incredible stuff like the story of a park ranger that been struck by lightning seven times. Sometimes they have stunt people doing motorcycle stuff like jumping over three helicopters while the blades are spinning. And then stories of people like Bill Ramsey, the Wolfman of London. And random trivia. It was this show that popularized the phrase don't try this at home. And guess who was watching the Wolfman episode back in Connecticut? Yeah. Demonologist Ed and Lorraine Warren. They were so intrigued, they decided to fly to London and track down Bill. They waited until it was a full moon. They uh, put a bear trap in his backyard with a little bit of raw meat in the center. Next thing you know, they killed a neighbor's cat. And they had to pay 400 pounds restitution and uh, were charged with a few crimes and nearly deported over the entire incident. No, they didn't, they didn't do that. They didn't wait until a full moon. They just went over to visit Bill and his family. After meeting Bill, they uh, came to believe he was possessed by the uh, demonic spirit of some kind of werewolf entity. The Warrens then flew Ramsey and his wife, Nina, back to America with them where they were uh, got some priests to assist them and some doctors and police officers and uh, perform an exorcism of Bill Ramsey. Bishop Robert McKenna led the exorcism, a man who had performed many exorcisms before. Also present, six off-duty police officers in case Bill became violent, in case he wolfed the fuck out. And this bishop ordered the demon to leave Bill forever. Bill's demeanor abruptly changed when the de- uh, excuse me, when the bishop put his hand upon uh, Bill's head. He began to snarl viciously, his face contorted into a beastly rage, teeth bared, eyes wild. His hands curled up into talons, and he began to thrash about. Lorraine Warren would later claim that even his physical characteristics changed, and his ears uh, started to become more pointed, his face more feral, his hands more claw-like. Bishop McKenna also said that when Bill's appearance changed, the frenzied, demon-possessed man lunged towards him, trying to maul him. McKenna stumbled back and produced a crucifix, which he held high while commanding in Latin that the demon leave Bill alone at once. This seemed to only further infuriate the demon, and Bill lunged and swiped at the bishop, who ordered the nearby policeman to stand down while things played out. Just as the uh, frenzied, out-of-control Ramsey seemed to close in for the kill and was about to seriously hurt the bishop, the monster became man again. The man who had moments before been a whirlwind of snarling, spitting aggression suddenly fell to the floor in a heap, One last roar rattling through him before he fell still. And Bill would later say regarding what happened, the poison that had been in my body drained from me completely. I was left without any strength at all. And when I turned back to look at Nina, that small movement caused me to black out. I gripped the chair as tightly as I could and let the demon continue to be pushed away by Bishop McKenna's Latin words. And the demon left and uh, Bill felt purified and unburdened and uh, supposedly uh, has yet to have any kind of werewolf uh, urges ever since. There's been uh, no word on the Bill Ramsey werewolf front since this uh, exorcism. But was he really possessed by the spirit of werewolf? You know, is that even a thing? All of this comes from uh, either the testimony of Bishop McKenna, some old drinking buddies of Bill's, the officers of the precinct when he went berserk, and a book on the case that Ed and Lorraine co-wrote entitled Werewolf, the True Story of Demonic Possession. The entire exorcism allegedly was caught on film, but I can't find the footage anywhere. So I have my doubts that it was filmed. Based on everything I've, I've read and seen, it is clear that many people uh, you know, witnessing this behavior do believe that something supernatural happened. Uh, but can there be a reasonable explanation? I mean, we know Bill spoke in a creepy voice, uh, said some strange things. We know he bit some people. Uh, he really did apparently uh, display an unusual amount of kind of berserker strength. But uh, he also did not actually turn into a wolf. 
his features may have shifted or uh, may not. There's there's not a photo of that. You know, maybe people just you know thought they saw something. Uh, unfortunate if he really did have his features changed, they didn't document it. Uh, so, okay, so what, what's another possible explanation for this? Well, let's look at the possibility of clinical lycanthropy, that mental disorder we examined in the werewolf suck, bonus suck 25, in which a patient believes that he or she is a wolf or some other kind of non-human animal. Uh, as we learned, this medical condition has been most likely to occur among people who believe in reincarnation and transmigration of souls. Not sure what Bill's beliefs are or were, but I, I doubt he was thinking about that kind of stuff at nine years old. Uh, also, the person suffering from this usually believes that they take the form of the most dangerous kind of beast of prey in their region or, or what has historically the most dangerous animal. And the wolf would make sense in London and elsewhere in Western Europe. Uh, we also learned previously that Dr. Jan Dirk Blom, assistant professor of psychiatry at the University of uh, Groningen uh, in the Netherlands, mined the archives of psychiatry to find out how common this condition is and found it's very rare. Since 1850, only 56 original case descriptions of people believing they are metamorphosizing into an animal. And among those, only 13 met the criteria for clinical lycanthropy. So super rare. Uh, the remaining cases, variants of the condition with patients uh, having delusional uh, convictions about being like a boa, snake, frog, bee. In reviewing all 56 uh, cases of delusional metamorphosis into animal form, Blom found that 25% of the patients were diagnosed with schizophrenia, 23% with psychotic depression, and about 20% with bipolar disorder. Among the patients, 34 were men, 22 were women, and their symptoms lasted anywhere from a single hour to decades. So, clinical lycanthropy, very, very rare, but more rare than demonic possession? Uh, hard to say, since a lot of people think that demonic possession never happens, and others think it happens all the time. Uh, could it have been some other mental illness, perhaps? We'll never know for sure. It's up to you to decide, you know, what you believe with this kind of stuff. After the Warrens helped conduct that alleged exorcism, I mean, supposedly, you know, Bill is cured. Uh, he did fade into obscurity after that. Uh, so now let's let's look into another somewhat well-known supernatural case the Warrens were involved in, the White Lady of Union Cemetery. This is that one uh, I mentioned earlier where they supposedly documented on video footage of this ghost. This one, not that scary to me, uh, again, uh, but interesting, the next ones will be a little more intense. Uh, one of Connecticut's Best-known ghost supposedly haunts the Union Cemetery in Easton, Connecticut. If any of you time suckers want to go there, the cemetery sits beside the centuries-old Easton Baptist Church near the intersection of Route 59 and Route 136. The locals call the ghost the White Lady. She's been seen by dozens uh, since the mid-20th century. The legend of the White Lady contains several explanations about who she was, how she came to haunt the cemetery in nearby Route 59, where she also appears. One account said that she was buried in the cemetery after she died during childbirth and that her confused spirit is desperately looking for her baby. So that's sad. Uh, two other versions say she was the victim of foul play, either murdered near the turn of the 20th century and her body thrown into a sinkhole behind the church or killed by her husband sometime in the uh, 1940s. So all kinds of legends. Some claim to have witnessed the apparition moving around the cemetery late at night. Others claim to have seen her around 59. A typical sighting involving the white lady uh, is one where she appears directly in front of people's cars as they drive by Union Cemetery, causing numerous passerby to brake hard, swerve to avoid impact. Then when they pop out of the car to look around for this, you know, supposed lady they've almost hit, they, just, you know, they don't find anything. One time, this would be intense, uh, a local fireman driving by the cemetery uh, claims that he hit the white lady, thought he struck a dark-haired woman in a white dress who walked right out into the road, Route 59, he felt the impact and supposedly discovered a dent in the hood of his vehicle after this happened and then found no one in the area he could have possibly hit. That would, that would be terrible. 
to for sure hit somebody. Like it's not in your head. You know, there's, there's a dent in the car. Other people can see. And then you can't find anyone. <laughs> if my friend told me that, I would just assume that they killed somebody. And they and that they just, you know, kind of rationalized. Uh, no, it wasn't. Yes, there's blood. Uh, yeah, there's blood on the car. And there's a bad dent and some hair and stuff. And a, there's, I know there's a few teeth. But uh, I ghost. I think ghost. Because I, I looked. I looked hard. I looked hard. Uh, you know, and I didn't find anybody. Uh, Ed and Lorraine kept hearing reports of this white lady. So this ghost in their Connecticut backyard. And then Ed goes to investigate in 1990. And he says that he spent seven straight nights in this graveyard in late August, 1990. Said he'd show up around uh, midnight each night and then just watch and wait for hours alone uh, with his camera uh, in his van. <laughs> of course, he had a van, by the way. You don't, you don't ghost hunt in a hatchback. You don't ghost hunt with a Harley. You don't, do, you don't show up in an F-150. Hey, you're fucking your creepy dude with a creepy van. Full of all kind of weird spectral wizard detector stuff. Cameras, paranormal magazines, you know, Cheetos, Mountain Dew. Uh, Ed said he kept seeing ghost lights floating all over the place. He knew some type of apparition would show itself soon. And then he said on September 1st, 2.40 a.m., he was sitting there and he could see all these lights floating around the Baptist Cemetery. And then all of a sudden, all of the thousands of little bugs one hears at night start to quiet down. And he says he could hear a woman weeping. Picks up his camcorder, starts recording. And he says he captured all these various ghost lights forming into the figure of a woman. The old lights into a woman phenomenon. Man, if I, if I had a nickel for every time I've seen, uh, you know, either myself or video of lights forming into a ghost woman, I would have zero dollars. Never seen that. But Ed said he did. He said on the film, you know, he took, uh, it looks as if the entity is far away, but actually she's quite close to him. And he started to walk towards her to get better footage. And then he said she disappeared. So he walks back and puts the camera on a tripod and then she reappeared and then he started to walk towards her again. She disappears again because he gets too close. So he backs up, uh, you know, she reappears. And then he said she started coming towards him another time, weaving in between the tombstones. Can you imagine, can you imagine how intense this would be if it really was happening to you? That'd be life-changing if, if you really saw something like that. Then he notices a pair of other entities <laughs> He describes as being dark and shadowy, moving behind this white lady. He describes them as having the rough shape and size of black poodles. That's truly his quote there, black poodles. He says that they're jumping up against her. Mm -hmm. He says that these things are apparently known in certain paranormal circles as shadow ghosts. And Ed thought these shadow ghosts, fucking shadow people, have shadow poodles apparently. Bojangles, get them. Go on, sing them, Bojangles. And, uh, and they're trying to keep the white lady from making it to Ed. And then suddenly a huge shadow ghost appears and pushes the white lady towards Route 59. And he says, that was it. Everything just disappeared. Uh, no more ghost lights, no white lady, no shadow ghosts. They're all gone. No more demon poodles. And he drives back home. He puts the tape in the VCR, shows the footage to Lorraine. She verifies it. So where is this footage? Can't find it anywhere. Unfortunately, if it exists, uh, it seems to have never made it to the web. Lorraine claims she has it and then it's under lock and key. Huh? Writer and paranormal enthusiast Jeff Bellinger did tell the editor of America's Haunted Road Trip.com that he grew up in this part of Connecticut. You know, heard many people talk about the white lady and that he did talk to Ed and Lorraine about it. And supposedly he claims he was shown this video. And, uh, and there's six seconds on this video that he claims are extremely compelling. So maybe that video is locked up as Lorraine claims with all the other worn relics that we can't see right now in the currently, uh, you know, defunct occult museum. Uh, as far as paranormal investigators go, I will say Jeff does not seem to be a complete wackadoodle. He's written a ton of books on hauntings. He has a, a docu-series he's been hosting since 2013 on Amazon Prime called New England Legends. He's been nominated for an Emmy. So, 
you know, who knows? Maybe this footage really does exist and it just hasn't been released for reasons I don't know. Maybe it's like the ring, right? Maybe if you let people start watching it, then fucking demon poodles start popping up in everybody's house. How, how would that annoying be if you had dogs, you couldn't, you know, the barked all the time, like, uh, like poodles tend to do, you know, yelling all the time, you know, nipping at your heels and you can't even discipline them. I mean, I guess they can't shit in the house or what if they filled your house with shadow poop? How did, is that worse than real poop? I don't know. A lot of questions. Um, I mean, I, I will say watching a video of them interviewed about it and Lorraine, they do seem to believe this story, you know? And if you were completely making it up, I was thinking like, why would you make up a lame detail like demon poodles? Like if I was making up a ghost tale, I certainly would not throw in a detail as lame as demon poodles. And what happened to the ghost next? It got it got chased away by some uh, demon poodles. By, by what? Uh, demon poodles. You heard me, demon poodles. Uh, the ghost was headed straight for my camera, but then <laughs> these damn demon poodles are yipping and a yapping, and they spooked my spirit. On to the next legend. Okay, 2013, I watched The Conjuring with Lindsay in a, in a movie theater in Inglewood, California, and maybe the most entertained I've ever been at a movie theater in my life. Neck and neck with The Ring for the scariest movie I've ever watched in the theater. People losing their shit, screaming out at this fucking screen. I, we were, I, 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 might have, I may have screamed a few times. I did actually. Uh, you know, like great horror movie. My skin crawled. Uh, Lindsay, I feel like Lindsay spent, I would say 20% of the movie with her hands, hands covering her eyes and squealed a few times. It's freaked her the hell out. Random trivia about The Conjuring. That movie grossed over $300 million on a budget of roughly $20 million. Hot damn. Uh, and that's why studio execs have some of the biggest mansions in Hollywood. Man, New Line Cinema, Warner Brothers, they, they paid for a lot of flops, you know, with that, with The Conjuring. James Wan, dude, that, that dude knows how to direct a horror film. Easily my favorite horror director ever. Uh, love his pacing, his misdirection, the way he scores his films. Uh, the dread he conjures up, just that tone, the emotional responses he brings out of the actors and actresses. Use of shadows, like the intensity of the jump movements, the, the breast size of the actresses, the hip-to-waist ratios of the ghosts, the boner size of the male leads. The testicle placement of the supporting actors, the camel toe emphasis uh, on the supporting actresses, the, the fabric covering the buttocks and bulges of, of many of the cameo appearances. And I think I just think it does a great job. And if you've seen that movie, you, you do know that everything I said after, were, after jump moments uh, was utter, perverse, and very com com completely unnecessary childish nonsense. You also know the movies about Roger and Carolyn Perrin moving into an old farmhouse in Harrisville, Rhode Island. And uh, with their dog and their five daughters. Spoiler alerts coming up now if you haven't seen this movie. I'm going to summarize it now. In the movie version, shit, we're going to parallel that with the real life, uh, you know, quote unquote real life version. In the movie version, shit starts to go wrong with the family uh, almost immediately. The clock stops uh, at 3.07 a.m., starts doing that each night. The dog who refused to enter the house is found dead in the backyard. Daughter gets trapped in the basement by some spirit. Two other kids are attacked by a demonic entity upstairs. The Warrens are contacted. And, the, and they investigate. And they discover that the house once belonged to an accused witch, Bathsheba, who sacrificed her weak old child to the devil and killed herself while cursing any who would come take her land. They found numerous reports of suicides and murders in the home. They find a secret passage in the wardrobe that leads to the cellar where Lorraine sees the demonic spirit of Bathsheba, a spirit that possesses the mother of the parent family, Carolyn. And then Ed is able to perform an exorcism that saves Carolyn and breaks the curse. That's the movie version. All right. Uh, so what is the uh, quote-unquote real version? Well, in January 1971, the Perrin family did move into a 14-room farmhouse in Harrisville, Rhode Island, where Carolyn, Roger, and their five daughters began to notice strange things happening almost immediately after they move in. 
Their dog, uh, if they did have one, is not mentioned. Uh, so does, so no dog dies right after moving in. Uh, no dog is afraid of going to the home. Uh, the evidence of a haunting shows itself much more slowly in the real-life version than it did in the film. Uh, Carolyn starts noticing the broom would go missing, that it seemed to move from place to place on its own. Uh, she begins to hear the sound of something scraping against the kettle in the kitchen when no one was in there. Now, that would, that would scare the shit out of me, a scraping noise. Coming from a place in your house where you know no one is standing. No, no one's in there. No, thank you. You know, like you leave and then you come back. It's, ah, that would drive me insane. Just that alone. Uh, Carolyn then starts finding small piles of dirt in the center of a newly cleaned kitchen floor. Not, that's a weird thing for a ghost to do. You know, I feel like this ghost is really bad at haunting. If you're just leaving like little dirt piles in a, you know, a formerly clean floor. That's not that freaky to me. You know, just like, uh, hey, 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 other ghosts. Oh, man. Check out the new scare I got. Listen to this. What I do is the floor is supposed to be clean, right? Are you with me? The floor is clean. I take a little bit of dirt, put it in the center of the floor. <laughs> How scary is that? Uh, I don't know. I don't think that's actually that scary. Uh, I mean, do you, do you make a scary sound or anything? Do, is a, In the pile of uh, dirt, is there like blood or teeth? No, just dust and some lint and like some popcorn kernels. But it showed it shows up out of nowhere. <laughs> How scary is that? Dude, that's fucking dumb, dude. No McWell, it's, it's fucking subtle, you asshole. Forgive me for having an original scare idea, you hack. Uh, after the suddenly appearing dirt piles, Carolyn's girls uh, began to notice spirits around the house. So they really, you know, escalated from dirt piles to spirit form. Uh, though for the most part, initially they seemed to be pretty harmless. Few angry ones, though. I guess that Karen allegedly does research uh, into the history of the home, and they discovered that it had been in the same family for eight generations and that many of them died under mysterious or horrible circumstances. Several of the kids had drowned in a nearby creek. One was murdered, and a few of them supposedly hanged themselves in the attic. Carolyn and her family also claimed to have seen the spirit of Bathsheba that was depicted in the film, saying she was the angriest spirit they've dealt with. Andrea Perrin, the oldest of the five Perrin girls, uh, says... Uh, uh, whoever the spirit was, she perceived herself to be the mistress of the house, and she resented the competition my mother posed for that position. And it turns out there there was actually a person named Bathsheba Sherman who lived near but not on the parents' property in the mid-1800s. That's part of the problem, I guess, with the real version is the lady, this Bathsheba character, didn't never actually lived in this home, lived like near, next door, basically. The parents' property was formerly the Arnold Estate, and Bathsheba lived in the adjoining Sherman Estate. Uh, the real Bathsheba... You know, born in Rhode Island, 1812, she married fellow Rhode Islander Judson Sherman, one year her senior, in Thompson, Connecticut, on March 10th, 1844. Uh, the two were married by Vernon Stiles, local justice of the peace. Bathsheba filled the role of housewife, while her husband Judson worked as a farmer on their land. Fairly well off, Bathsheba and Judson had a son, Herbert Sherman. Uh, born with Bathsheba was approximately 37 years old, March of 1849. Now, it's possible they also had three other children as well who did not survive past the age of seven, though no census reports could be found to confirm that. And now, here's where it really gets hard to differentiate folklore uh, from outright lies. According to the Warrens, the parents and various other paranormal investigators and enthusiasts, Bathsheba was rumored to have been a Satanist. And the rumor continues to assert that there was evidence that she had been involved in the death of a neighbor's child, although no trial ever took place. An infant allegedly mysteriously died in Bathsheba's care, and when the baby was examined, it was determined that the mortal wound was caused by a large sewing needle that had been impaled into the base of the baby's skull. 
And according to the narrative of this tale, the townspeople did believe that Bathsheba had sacrificed the infant as an offering to the devil, but due to insufficient uh, evidence, she was never put on trial. And despite her name being cleared legally, the public was not convinced, you know, and there was rumors, echoes of kind of like Lizzie Borden here. However, I can't find any old court documents about this trial. So is it folklore? Uh, is it some story passed down from generation to generation in, in this area, based partially at least in truth? Or did the parents and the Warrens, you know, or one of them just make it up? Uh, historical investigator Jamie Rubio, who runs a really cool website called dreamingcasuallypoetry.blogspot.com, doesn't think Bathsheba was ever accused of satanic sacrifice. Uh, Jamie points out, do you really think that the townspeople would have allowed Bathsheba to be buried in the cemetery next to her husband and children if they thought she was a witch? Eh, it's a good point. I mean, Bathsheba was buried in the town cemetery. Uh, the grave site of Bathsheba Sherman is located in the historic cemetery across the street from the fire station and rotary in downtown Harrisville, Rhode Island. And Jamie also asks, do you think the church would have given her a funeral or even mentioned her in the obituary of the newspaper had she been so hated in the community? Uh, I don't know. I mean, if there really was just rumors floating around that she was a satanic witch when she was younger, but nothing was ever proven— and that she had a lot of family members in the area, where, where in sense, which uh, census records, excuse me, do indicate she did. I don't think it's weird for uh, for rumors not to show up in the paper, right? Um, you know, I think they could have, you know, uh, gave her normal obituary and just not mentioned these rumors because they are just rumors. You know, like if she outwardly pr- professed to be Christian, what choice would some local, uh, you know, minister have but to give her a Christian burial? You know, at that point in history, I feel like that would just, they would just be like, well, all right, there's weird rumors, but we're still going to give her a funeral. Like, like I'm not saying like, like I think this woman uh, did worship the Dark Lord and did sacrifice a baby to the Dark Lord. I'm just saying that if she was doing this shit in secret, not weird for it to be not mentioned in the papers of the day. Not weird for her to still get an obituary that doesn't mention this. You know, uh, you know, I think local paper journalists would, would not want to slander somebody with accusations of Satanism if they weren't, you know, completely proven. I mean, there was all kind of rumors of uh, floating around in Riggins where I grew up that never made it to the papers. That'd be pretty shitty to put slanderous gossip uh, in the paper when somebody died. You know, just Betty Damon passed last Wednesday at Syringa Hospital, surrounded by family and friends at the age of 78. She was loved and respected by many, including her husband, James Earl, who loved Betty dearly for over 50 years. She'll be missed by many, such as the fellow Bridge Club members she played cards with every Tuesday night and the folks at the Eagles Club where she helped with bingo and burgers first Monday of every month. Betty will also be remembered as a loving mother, grandmother, sister, and wife, and also as a hot piece of ass by the many, 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 many men rumored to have banged Betty behind the Silver Dollar Saloon throughout much of her 20s and 30s, where legend has it she'd drop her panties for anyone who bought her a few beers or gave her a few bucks. Blowjob Betty, she was known in some circles, was believed to have put the member of nearly every man in the county into her mouth at least once. Town drunk Gus Okerson, a regular at Dugan's Tavern, the sole source of all of this information, said that Betty could suck the scales off a rattlesnake. Betty's funeral will be held at the Thousand Oaks Cemetery Saturday at noon. Ah, uh, no, I don't think you see those kind of obituaries. Satanic kid murderer or normal settler or somewhere in between, Bathsheba Sherman died as an old woman May 25th, 1885, roughly four years after her husband, Judson, uh, in 1881. And how did the Perrin family come up with the Bathsheba connection? How did they even know about this? Did the demon announce herself? I am Bathsheba Sherman, Satan-worshipping, baby-stabbing witch. You've fallen into my curse. Uh, now, the family's connection to the spirit of Bathsheba Sherman came at the suggestion of paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren. Carolyn told Ed and Lorraine about an incident that happened a few years earlier 
when the investigators first met with her, said she was lying on the sofa, all of a sudden felt a piercing tight pain in her calf, and then the muscle began to spasm. She examined it. She noticed it's a puddle of blood at the point of impact. She checks for bees, anything else that could have caused a puncture in her leg, but found nothing. In her daughter's book, Andrea Perrin describes the wound as perfectly concentric in uh, a perfectly concentric circle, as if a large sewing needle had impaled her skin. Uh huh. It's weird that you would go right to sewing needle though. But when Carolyn told Ed and Lorraine Warren in this story, or this story in conjunction with the tale of uh, Bathsheba Sherman. Uh, who had been suspected of killing an infant with a, a knitting needle, as they found out. Lorraine then suggested that Bathsheba Sherman could have taken the needle with her into the afterlife and used it to stab Carolyn in the calf. And from that point on, Lorraine uh, Warren began to refer the, to, uh, to the demonic presence in the parent house as Bathsheba. I love how they decided that Bathsheba could take a sewing needle to the afterlife. <laughs> that's a little weird to me, that that's the object you would get to take is a sewing needle. No, I shall take the devil's needle. I will sew and stab in hell. And also sometimes I will cross-stitch and, and other times stab someone in the leg on earth. Not a big, not a big wound. Not, nothing dramatic like an eyeball. Nothing lethal like the, the temple. Just, you know, in the, in the leg where it will definitely hurt a little bit but not cause lasting damage. And then the parents came to believe that it was Bathsheba's spirit that was tormenting them. According to Andrea, the family experienced other spirits as well that smelled like rotting flesh, would cause beds to rise up off the floor. She claims her father would enter the basement, feel a cold, stinking presence behind him. Fuck that. Ugh. If I'm going out of the basement and I, and I start, and I just I'll suddenly get really cold and you smell like rotting flesh. Just like, I'm out of there. I am out of the house for a little while. I'm gonna go do some yard work. But it's 10 degrees and just snow outside. I know. I just check the snow. Going to check the snow outside for a while. Um, and, uh, yeah, they, they, they came to believe that, uh, they, or that you know, and all this stuff is happening. They stay away from the dirt floor cellar. Uh, but I guess the heating equipment would, would sometimes fail mysteriously. And then Roger would have to go down and get scared again. Uh, though the mo- movie version of events culminates with Ed performing an exorcism. Lorraine insists that that didn't happen because it has to be performed by Catholic priests. Uh, she says no exorcism happened in this case, but they did do a seance. Daughter Andrea claims to have secretly witnessed this seance when she was a little kid. She said, I thought I was going to pass out. My mother began to speak a language not of this world and a voice not her own. Her chair levitated and she was thrown across the room. I don't, I don't think you come back from that mentally if that happens for real. After the seance, Roger supposedly kicks the Warrens out, worried about his wife's mental stability. Ah, uh, yeah. And then according to Andrea, the family continues to live in the house due to financial instability until they're able to move in 1980, which, at which point the spirits... Uh, I guess supposedly were silenced and the, and the haunting ceased. When asked why the family endured the spirit invaders for years, the whole ordeal took place between 1970 and 1980. Perrin says, I hear this question most every day. I think we were supposed to have this experience and share it with the world. Ah, no, I'm out of there. When asked why they uh, went to the cellar, Carolyn said the family stayed uh, away from the dirt floor cellar. But, you know, I, like I said, had to go there sometimes when the equipment would feel, uh, or, or equipment would fail, you know, and Roger would go have to fix the furnace. Uh, so did any of this happen? Daughter Andrea Perrin stated in an interview that everyone who has lived in this house that we know of has experienced this. Some have left screaming and running for their lives. The man who moved in uh, to begin the restoration of the house when we left sold it screaming, running to his car without his uh, tools, without his clothing. He never went back to the house and consequently the people who owned it, the adjacent landowners, never moved in and it sat vacant for years. That's what Andrea says. But the current owner of the home, Norma Sutcliffe, 
says she's doing just fine. She's not running and screaming and abandoning everything she owns. And in a 2014 interview with Providence Journal, she says that she does not believe that any ghosts or spirits haunt the house. She's sick of people trespassing on her property and bothering her neighbors since The Conjuring came out. And people have been trying to find ghosts around her home. For her, ironically, she does hear things go bump in the night. And those things are assholes trying to find other things to go bump in the night. So, right? So, it sounds like, oh, it's a bunch of bullshit. However, however, there is a video of Andrea Perrin interviewing Norma before The Conjuring came out. And in this video, Norma does state that she's heard things she can't explain. She does uh, seem to think the house is haunted. She does say that she's uh, she and other people have heard mysterious voices and footsteps. She said she heard a door banging in the front hall, sounds of people talking in another room, sound of footsteps accompanied by a door in another room, and her husband's chair vibrating in the study. Said she saw a blue light shoot across the bedroom and that her husband once saw fog in the house. She also allowed ghost hunters to explore her home on the sci-fi TV show Ghost Hunters. So maybe after The Conjuring came out, she just decided she wanted people to stay the hell off of her property. Maybe she's Balfamet trying to trick us. I don't know. Uh, but some dude uh, uh, named Keith, he thinks that uh, she's just sick of people, you know, bothering her house and has changed her story. And uh, this is this is some guy who posted the following comment under Norma's YouTube interview um, with, you know, Carolyn, where she says, I live in Harrisville. Or no, he says, I live in Harrisville, a mile from the house. I spoke with Norma in September 2013, weeks after The Conjuring movie came out. Norma was quite furious at the time because of the many curious people who have been trespassing on her property since the movie's release. And she has had to call the local police many times. She told me that the house is not haunted and that the movie is mostly made up by Hollywood. I disputed this with her, knowing that she had previously acknowledged her own ghost experiences in the house as shown in this video and also on the TV show Ghost Hunters second season, episode seven. I'm sure that Norma was extremely upset by the outcry from this film and wants people to believe the stories were all fabricated so they will leave her house alone. However, I have no doubt that the house is truly haunted. All right, so again, maybe something really did go on in this house. Maybe something is still going on. I, I for one, would not want to sleep in this house overnight. No, thank you. There's no way I would record this episode from that house. All right, one more, big one. The one that inspired the movie, a haunt, or The Haunting in Connecticut. Uh, but first, Ken's comment made me want to look into other web comments. So time today for today's Idiots of the Internet. Idiots of the Internet. There's a video called Ed and Lorraine Warren, uh, What to Do When You See a Ghost, uh, posted by Ali Mazarin in 2009. It's a clip taken from son-in-law Tony Spears' former public access show called Seekers of the Supernatural. <laughs> Pretty hilarious videos if you want to watch them, actually. Uh, this one's a seven-minute video. Ed's advice is to ask the ghost, in the name of God, is there something I can do to help you? He says, if it's an evil spirit, it will disappear immediately. And if it's a positive one, Ed says... A, uh, a, a relative, uh, like as in so like a relative or some lost spirit that's been drawn to you, you might just get some kind of communication when you ask them if you can help. However, a lot of rules. If you run into a bad spirit in a haunted house, a powerful angry spirit in a place with a lot of negative energy, you're, you're going to be too scared to ask the ghost if you can help. So in those cases, Ed recommends that you run, that you leave the house. Ed also says that those spirits uh, can do great physical harm to people. Kind of a muddy answer. That's uh, that's weird to me. Like, apparently, like, if an evil ghost is just wandering about, you can ask, in the name of God, can I help you? And the evil spirit just goes, just vanishes immediately. Just that easy. Just gone. You don't, you don't spook to spook out of this world. But if you're in the evil spirit's home, 
Then the evil spirit is like, nah, motherfucker, you can't help me. But you can feed me, Seymour. Feed me, Seymour. And then it does horrible things to you. So ask for help if you encounter an evil spirit in like a 7-Eleven or like a, like a not haunted Starbucks drive-thru. Uh, run away if you encounter a spirit in a cartoonish Scooby-Doo-esque haunted mansion. Now let's see what the comment section has to say about this video. Uh, Fit Girls Guide posts, what to do if you see a ghost? Take the Bible and yeet yourself out the window. Duh. <laughs> I just like this one because she says yeet. Do you mean Sax know about yeet? Uh, my son Kyder says yeet all the time. Drives Lindsay and I crazy. Uh, it's a versatile word, yeet. I think it started as something you say when you when somebody made a three-pointer in basketball. Now it can just be something you say when you're excited or happy, like a battle cry. Yeah, or, or to describe throwing something. You know, oh man, you just, just yeeted that. You just yeeted that football off to the side. Or throwing yourself, you know, you just, you just, you just done yeeted yourself out that window, fool. Well, Rusty Nichols goes full Scooby Doo and posts. <laughs> I just thought this was cute. What to do when you see a g- 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 ghost? Run in the opposite direction past the repetitive background for a while. Eventually, get to a door and enter exit it. Hide out, then get distracted. Partake in some wacky hijinks. Possibly get stoned again. Eat more snacks. Create more hijinks. Encounter the ghost as you're running around, crashing into it. Wait for your friends to show up just in the nick of time to unmask the ghost. Enjoy a laugh as the ghost gets arrested and taken to jail thanks to you meddling kids. Pretty rusty, adorable. Uh, pretty, pretty rusty. Pretty adorable, rusty. Uh, pretty nice. Okay, now to something more fun. Uh, user Jolie Bourgeois posts, what do I do when I see a ghost? Well... The ghosts that I see are those of my ancestral spirits, and the only feeling I get is that of being loved. Most of the women folk of my family see them and hear them as well, and we consider it a blessing, a token that they care enough to check upon us from time to time. They also particularly seem to like attending graduations and weddings and flock to give their approval of newborn babies. We've never been scared. Bullshit. Bullshit. Shut the fuck up, Joe. I don't don't believe you for a second, mostly because you use the word woman folk. Women folk or women folk, who says who speaks like that? The women folk of what are you posting this from eighteen twelve? What are you talking about? But nonsense. You just casually seen ancestors at uh, the hospital and graduation funerals just all the time. Oh yeah, yeah, they're always around. All right, well then fucking record it. Yeah, I mean I don't know you. I can't know that you're lying, but I do think you're full of shit. I think you and your family lie to each other about all the ancestors you supposedly see. I mean, if, if your family's just casually seen and hearing ghosts just showing up, you know, like uh, like in Return of the Jedi, uh, there at Ewok Village, well then, I don't know, capture, capture it somehow. Get a picture. Why don't you do that? Oh, yeah, probably because it's not happening. And I know, I know, and I know. The Warrens may not be any less full of shit than, uh, than Jolie. I, I know. It's just the way he wrote that post. It just really irritated me. User Ray Bryce posts, I love this. I love the fake tough guys in these situations. Ray, Ray posts, cowards. I try and fight it every time. Get the fuck out of here, Ray Bryce. No, you don't. No, you don't. Shut up with your bullshit. Oh, you're so brave fighting the many, many ghosts you see. What do you fight them with? Do you fight them with the many, many candy bars you have uh, hidden in your room, decorated like a, like a child's because you either are one or are technically uh, an adult who lives like a child at home with his parents? Do you fight them with your Disneyland lightsaber? Do you fight them with the, with the nunchucks you ordered off Amazon that you don't know how to use? Do you fight them with your PS4 controller? Do you wear a Pokemon t-shirt when you fight them? Do you wear a Dragon Ball Z t-shirt when you fight them? Doom666 posts, all of you doubters can kick rocks. Until it's happened to you, kick rocks. 
Spirits ain't like Bigfoot. They actually exist. Kick rocks? That is not the kind of insult I expected from someone with the username of Doom666. That's, that's something I expect uh, from somebody with the, with the username like Nito Bumbito or Ashux McGee. If you don't like it, you can kick rocks. Heck yeah, you can kick rocks. You can make like a tree and leave and kick rocks. You can go get bent. If you don't heckin' like the doom I'm throwing around, this 666 devil party. Frickin' A, you can kick rocks. Uh, user process posts offered a life insurance policy and direct it to your PowerPoint presentation. It will leave. Ha! You win, process. Well played. Uh, Mr. Rees posts, I get anxiety when his spirit is around. Okay. Maybe Mr. Rees should uh, change their username to ads diddly squat to conversations. Or this goes without saying... Or get ready for a whole lot of nothing. Andy Freeman posts, what do you do when you see a ghost? Visit a local psychologist. Yeah, yeah. Probably the first thing I would do. Phoenix God posts, ask them for lottery numbers. Excellent. Didn't think of that, Phoenix God. Uh, Yeah, why can't ghosts give us winning numbers? I mean, if they can see the future, maybe they had other powers. Uh, Jacob Castro posts, if you saw God in person, you would die. Because the human body is fragile. And if you saw the greatest of God, you would just die. Your body, that is, not your spirit. That's why God can't show himself to us. Because our minds would not be able to, to cope with it. Okay, I don't know what this has to do with the ghost here in this situation, uh, Jacob Castro, but thanks for thanks for definitively clearing up one of life's greatest mysteries. We can't see God because we would die. Case closed. Why, why would you even question that? It's truth. Jacob has said it to us. He knows everything. God told him one time because he was talking to God because you can talk to God but not see God. All right? If you if God goes into your ear hole, you're fine. If God goes into your eye hole, pow, fucking obviously. Uh, finally, user Ben Gallifin posts, have you heard of an analogy? This is my favorite one. He goes, have you heard of an analogy? You can't see the president directly without scads of luck involved, but you can see him on TV or hear news about him. <laughs> you don't see God directly for the most part. But you can hear of his miracles and hear witness of what he's done in people's lives. The problem comes in that the devil doesn't want people to hear or recognize these accounts for what they are. So he helps a non-believer to come up with reasons not to believe. Have you ever heard of an analogy, Ben? Seeing or not seeing the president is a really shitty analogy. For seeing or not seeing ghosts or, or God, you fucking idiot. An analogy is a comparison between two things, typically for the person of explanation or clarification. And the things you're comparing to, uh, you know, uh, comparing, they need to relate to one another. Otherwise, the analogy just adds confusion to what you're trying to explain as opposed to clarification. We know the president is real, Ben. Unless you're a flat earther who literally will not believe in anything at all unless you specifically have seen it, which means you're a moron. No one is questioning the existence of the president. Like people do question the existence of ghosts. People debate that. Everyone who is not a paranoid fucking moron knows the president is real. Get out of here. There's no doubt about that. Unless you're intellectually disabled to the point that no analogy is going to help you understand anything. There's no reason to use this because you just truly don't have the, uh, the cognitive capacity to understand basic, obvious things exist. Uh, little known people doing known jobs, or I'm sorry, like, like, uh, like, like known people doing known jobs, you know, you haven't had the chance to meet personally, not a good comparison for ghosts. Uh, a good comparison would be like bacteria, right? You can't see bacteria. They're too small to be seen with the naked eye. Can't see bacteria do a press conference, right? Yet these microorganisms surround you at all times and have been proven to exist. We now have the technology to see them using microscopes. 
And we know that they existed long before microscopes, right? Back when we couldn't see them. They still existed, right? You know, when we couldn't see them. That same thing could be true for ghosts today. You know, someday we may have the technology to see the ghosts that are possibly around us right now and in the future prove their existence. Just because you can't see them now, just like we couldn't see bacteria for, you know, for all of human history prior to microscopes, that does not prove they do not exist. Does that make sense, Ben? And that is all for today's Idiots of the Internet. Idiots of the Internet. All right, you meet Zach's ready for one more tale? Hmm? Uh, I am. Uh, I could have picked more, but I wanted to explore a few in depth, you know, rather than just touch on a bunch. Uh, let's talk about another Warren Bass tale, the, ha- uh, the Haunting in Connecticut. This is the craziest one to me. The 2009 horror film tells a tale of, and again, spoiler alerts, the Campbell family. They move into a house that turns out to be a former mortuary to lessen the strains of travel on their cancer-stricken son, Matthew. Shortly after moving in, Matt has visions of an old bearded man and corpses with symbols carved into their skin. Then Peter, the dad, learns that the home was a funeral home. At the hospital, Matt tells another patient, Reverend Nicholas Papesco, about the visions, and Nicholas advises him to find out what the spirit wants. Later, Matt finds a burned figure in the room who begins to move towards him. Super creepy. When the family comes home, they find a shirtless Matt with his fingers blood-covered from scratching at the wall. Matt and his brother... Uh, and some cousins find a box of photographs which show Jonah, a young man from Matt's vision uh, at a seance emitting ectoplasm. Wendy and Matt find out that the funeral home was run by a man named Ramsey Eichmann. Eichmann also conducted psychic research and would host seances with Jonah as the medium. At one seance, all those attending, including Eichmann, were found dead and Jonah had disappeared. Then they find uh, a box of photographs which show Jonah, a young man from Matt's visions, at a seance emitting the ectoplasm. Wendy and Matt find out that the funeral home uh, wait, oh, sorry, I just, I'm repeating myself. Peter and Sarah learned that Matt's cancer treatments had no effect. Uh, then they discover that Matt has escaped the hospital. Back at the house, Nicholas leaves a message telling the family to get out of the house immediately. Jonah's spirit was actually protecting them from the spirits. Matt breaks through the walls in the front room with an axe, revealing the dusty corpses Ackman had hid in the walls of the house. He forces Wendy and the kids to get out, barricades himself, and starts tearing down other walls as corpses begin to tumble around in the room. The view switches from Matt to Jonah, who seems to be occupying Matt's body. Mike lights the bodies in the room on fire, and then later investigators arrive at the house to find it engulfed in flames. As the fire department arrives, Sarah and Peter frantically try to get in and save Matt. The spirits, finally freed, disappear. Outside, everyone watches tearfully as the emergency room crew attempts to resuscitate a dying Matt. As Matt slips away, he has a vision of himself standing in the graveyard, where he sees Jonah no longer appearing burnt. He seems to, uh, to follow Jonah when he hears his mother's voice. And then he returns to his body and Jonah's spirit leaves him. Matt's cancer is then cured. The house is rebuilt and resold with no further reported incidents of haunting. So that's the movie. That's the movie version. How does that compare with the real story? Let's dig into that. In 1986, Carmen and Al Snedeker moved into the small town of Southington, Connecticut, with the purpose of being closer to the hospital at which their oldest son, Philip, was being treated for Hodgkin's lymphoma. So, so far, so good. That obviously lines up with what we just heard. Having fallen on hard financial times, the family jumped at the chance to rent what happened to be the perfect house. It was large enough for the family, which included three children and a cousin, and, there, and the rent was in an affordable price range. It was uh, while they were moving in that Alan made, makes a startling discovery. In the basement was a peculiar room that was complete with embalming tables and tools, finds out that the house was used as a funeral home, and that the basement uh, was sectioned into several rooms, was the only room deemed large enough to serve as the two boys' bedroom. So... 
I don't know. How do you miss that in the walkthrough? Like, how do you not find out that a home you're going to move your family into was once a funeral home and still has a, a death room of sorts in the basement? Always check the basement before you move into a new home. Always look in the skeller, cellar. <laughs> skeller. Always look in the skeller, you guys. You get down there and dig into the skeller. No, you got to do a quick monster check before you move in. Uh, but, so, yes, but still, seems to match up to the movie pretty well. Not long after moving in, Carmen says she began experiencing strange phenomena, like items disappearing and her children reporting strange people in the house as well as hearing voices and the sounds of hundreds of birds taking flight. Her oldest, who at the time uh, was in the middle of radiation treatment, began to exhibit radical personality shifts, becoming withdrawn and angry. He starts brooding, begins to write dark poetry with necrophiliac themes. During one intense episode, he attacks the, the cousin with the intent to rape her. Uh, rape her. Uh, his family takes him in for an evaluation where he's pronounced schizophrenic. He's removed from the house and then seems to get better uh, until returning. That's to be very uncomfortable for the cousin for him to come back. Ah, sorry about the whole trying to attack and rape you earlier. Now the story seems to shift away from the movie uh, and gets uh, even creepier, actually, than the movie. Maybe the movie toned down the truth a bit or the quote-unquote truth. You know, other phenomena that reported by the Steedikers included the repeated and brutal rape of both Carmen and her niece as well of act, as acts of sodomy being performed on her husband by unseen entities. Definitely did not make the movie. Uh, studio execs are probably like, uh, you know why we cut the ghost out of me out? Because we didn't want to get stuck with the NC-17 uh, label you know, rating. If you look at the rating guide, it specifically says any scenes depicting or alluding to spectral butt rape will automatically result in an NC-17 rating. It's right there. No, we can't do it. Uh, how do you not move out when demons start raping the whole family? I mean, it's not like just the kids are saying it, you know, that the demons are raping them. Like, you know, in that case, you know, as a parent of some imaginative kids, I, I would understand not believing them because that's an outrageous claim. Like if Kyler suddenly told me that he needed to sleep in Lindsay and I's room because, <laughs> because he kept getting ghost raped, there's no way I'm buying that. There's no way. I'd be like, nah, dude, I don't know what you watched or read that you weren't supposed to, but uh, you're not going to ruin my sleep and my sex life now. But dad, it's going to get me. It happens every night. Well, sounds like you need to work on clenching your butt a little better, right? You seal it up a little tighter when you go to bed. Seal it off, bud. You can do it. Shut your brown eye tight. Keep those horny devils out. That's what I do. I only sleep fully clenched ever. I have never fallen asleep with a loose butthole. Now go to your room, little ghost lover. Uh, but it wasn't just the kids, you know? Mom and dad are getting spirit raped. No one's holes are safe. At that point, you know, money being tight or not, you got to get out of there. Better to sleep crammed up in a studio apartment, uh, you know, where everyone's holes are safe. Then to have the whole fam in some big roomy house where there's a surplus of demon dick just waiting to give your hiney a little bit of a ghost throttling. Uh, in addition to the ghost raping, mop water started turning blood red. Scenes of uh, scents of rotting flesh and decay reported throughout the house. The mom starts seeing various apparitions, one with long black hair and black eyes. Uh, no. Whew. I don't like that thought at all. Fuck that. I don't know why that suddenly just creeped me out. If I saw some weird-ass spirit after getting butt-raped by a ghost, and then I see something with, the, like, long black hair and just all black eyes, fuck, I, how the fuck do you sleep in your house after that? No way. No way. Go to a, a homeless shelter. Homeless shelter where there's not a black-haired person with black eyes, far better than a nice house. I don't care if you live on a nice house in the lake, gated estate. Once black hair, black eyes, fucking raper starts showing up, pew, out, out. Uh, in addition to the ghost raping. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I said that. Uh, oh, and then they saw another uh, entity after the black hair and black eyes wearing a pinstripe tuxedo. 
And then they saw another entity uh, that they came to know as Shadow Chikatila. What is what is big deal? I barely rape you compared to other ghosts. Other ghosts are raping all the time with uh, hard demon power cocks. I do raping with Sasha Shamecock. I bother no one. For sake, for sake of comparison, I friendliest rapist in house. I like a little bit of wrestling. Uh, you know, I'm more weird friend than a monster. I'm more bad slumber party guest. Of course, you did not see uh, Shadow Ticketillo. Finally, the Seneckers decided to contact Ed and Lorraine Warren. Along with John Zaffis and a few investigators, the Warrens moved into the house for several weeks until they'd experienced everything the Steenikers claimed, uh, other than the ghost raping. Uh, neither Ed or Lorraine uh, claimed to experience that. If they did experience that, they left that out of their story. Um, during their time in the house, the Warrens claimed to have uh, seen firsthand stuff like, uh, you know, demons floating around, uh, slapping family members. You know, they look into the history of the house that reveals uh, one of the undertakers at the funeral home was uh, found guilty of necrophilia which fed fuel to the fire. He got to the point that the Warrens deemed it necessary for a full-scale exorcism of the property, after which the house was judged cleared by the Warrens. The Steenaker family then lived in the house for two years after it was exercised and moved to Tennessee. Uh, and, and, and by them exercising, it means, you know, they got their little crew together. Bodies were never found in the walls. The home was never burned down. The Jonah character is based on nothing real. Uh, the son, Philip, did get cured of cancer. Unfortunately, Philip's cancer came back many years later when he was 38 and he died in 2012. Um... But did this stuff really happen? According to the current owner of the Southington home, a woman named Susan Trotta Smith, no. She says that her husband and her have now lived in the house for 10 years. She thinks the house is wonderful. She thinks when it comes to the hauntings that it's all a bunch of Hollywood foolishness and the stories are ludicrous. Also, uh, Ray Garten, the man who would co-author a book about the Sneedaker story with the Warrens, a book called In a Dark Place, published in 1992, would make the following claim in an interview. He said, I was offered the job, and because I used to read uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren's uh, read of Ed and Lorraine Warren's exploits in the National Enquirer when I was a kid, I took it. I went to Connecticut and spent time with the Warrens and the Sneedekers. When I found that the Sneedekers couldn't keep their individual stories straight, I went to Ed Warren and explained the problem. They're crazy, he said. All the people who come to us are crazy, and that's why they come to us. Just use what you can and make the rest up. You write scary books, right? We'll make it up and make it scary. That's why we hired you. <laughs> so that's supposedly what, uh, what Ed Warren said. The remaining Sneedaker children, now all grown up, do still seem to, seem to think it, uh, that it happened. Carmen Reed, formerly Carmen Sneedaker, is now a spiritual advisor. She plans on writing another book about the experience. So were the Warrens just a couple of con artists? Did Ed really believe all these people were crazy like Ray Garten stated? Or did he and Ray just have some kind of falling out? You know, probably regarding book uh, profits or the split of profits, and did Ray just decide to throw the Warrens' credibility under the bus? You know, I, I think that's always got to be a possibility. Even if Ed and Lorraine were believers, does that mean any of this actually really truly happened? I mean, we can't see the video of the uh, White Lady of Easton Cemetery. You know, why weren't why weren't uh, they able able to uh, to give us anything super definitive in all these stories? Something that would you know, uh, without a shadow of a doubt, prove the existence of spirits and demons. Maybe because they don't exist, or maybe because, like, uh, you know, because of like my bacteria analogy earlier, maybe we just don't have the right equipment yet. You know, what if what if some of all of these tales or all these tales are real? I know I've you know been sarcastic, you know, with a lot of this stuff. That's like the logical part of my brain, but all it takes is for one of these stories to be real, to have the world be uh, a much scarier place. I mean, what if the Warrens? What if they made up some of it? But what if they didn't make up all of it? What if they didn't make up any of it? What if they really saw this shit? You know, I get real tough, like right now when it's daytime uh, and I'm in a well-lit room, you know, talking about, talking about all this stuff. Uh, but what if, 
I don't know. You know, what if what if they're right? I don't know. Clench your butts, I guess. You know, when you fall asleep tonight, meat sacks. Guess anything is possible. You know, you don't you don't want to take uh uh you know not take this stuff seriously and then end up giving birth to some kind of demon butt baby down the road. Maybe that's how the apocalypse starts. You know, you get you get demon butt raped and you give birth to Satan. Maybe, maybe. For sure, right now it's time for top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, Ed and Lorraine Warren founded the New England Society for Psychic Research in 1952 and researched paranormal incidents around the world until 1996. And Lorraine continued to consult on paranormal investigations after Ed's death in 2006 until just a few years ago. They were married for almost 62 years. Number two, films based on cases the Warrens investigate include The Conjuring, Conjuring 2, Annabelle, Annabelle Creation, The Haunting in Connecticut. These films have grossed well over a billion dollars at the box office alone. Number three, Ed and Lorraine's son-in-law, Tony Spira, and their daughter, Judy, uh, carry on the, the Warren legacy by continuing to operate the New England Society for Psychic Research. The website for the society, if you're curious, is warren.net. Number four, Every story the Warrens have become famous for has been disputed. Many believe the Warrens are nothing more than con artists. However, many others do verify what the Warrens claim to have seen. Uh, when it comes to the paranormal, you know, science has yet to prove it. It's up to you if you want to believe this stuff or not. And again, you know, I don't believe when the, uh, when the sun's up, but when the sun goes down, uh, the stuff starts feeling way too possible. And number five, new info. Do you want to become a demonologist just like Ed and Lorraine Warren? Well, you can the School of Parapsychology has online classes in relation to demonology, exorcisms, and parapsychology. Not sure how much it costs. Didn't feel like registering to find out. You have to register to figure that out. I do know it only costs 75 bucks to get an honorary Bachelor of Paranormal Studies from Bishop Long at bishopjameslong.com. Woohoo! Uh, he looks extremely wackadoodle based on the pictures on his website. In order to obtain an honorary Bachelor, students must complete the Paranormal Studies program, which consists of four courses— they are genealogy, demonology, angelology, and calculus two. Now, of course, not calculus two. It's paranormal studies is the other one. That's the fourth course. Uh, the students uh, or student must complete the entire course with no lower than a C minus average. No Ds for demonologists. Bishop Long will not accept it. He takes his seventy-five dollar bachelor degree very seriously. Uh, you can also get an honorary master of paranormal studies from Bishop Jimmy. In order to obtain an honorary master's, you just got to do the same thing. You got to complete the same course with a C-plus or better grade point average. Only the best of the best get their master's. Only C-plus or higher. And you have to complete either a thesis that is 10 pages long or do a project discussed, uh, you know, by, by you and Bishop Long. Uh, you know, agreed upon by, by, Bishop, by the premier of Bishop Long. And you can get an honorary doctorate of paranormal studies. You just got to do the same thing. Just complete the same exact program with a B plus. Ooh, really fucking cream of the crop right now. Got to have a B plus or better grade point average and complete 15 page thesis or project assigned by Bishop Long. So really you can get a doctorate for 75 bucks. I, and I got to say, as doctorates go, that's a hell of a deal. And I actually do kind of want to do it. A time sucker already signed me up to become a reverend, you know, for 50 bucks. So I'm already, I'm already a reverend. You know, Universal Church, now now for like another 75 bucks, probably less time than it took to put this suck together, definitely less time, I could be a doctor. Reverend Dr. Cummins, I could marry you, and if needed, I could rid your marriage of demons. Hail Nimrod. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Ah, the Warrens have been sucked. 
That was a fun one. A lot of stories with that topic, weird, interesting tales. You know, my, my gut, as you probably figured out, says that, uh, you know, this stuff's probably full of shit. But who knows? Only one of these, only one of these tales has to be real. Oh, man. What if, oh, man. What if next week I come back and I'm like, well, my butt's, my butt's sore. I joked about uh, demon butt rape too many times. And now some horny demon is infe- has infested my room. Uh, thanks again to the Time Suck team, man. Uh, the high priestess of the suck, Harmony Camp, always so helpful. Killing it on the memes. Killing it with the memes. On uh, at Time Suck Podcast on Instagram and elsewhere, Jesse Guardian of Grammar Dobner, fixing a lot of my mistakes before they before they make it to your ear holes. Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley, sweetening the sound of the suck and now doing the video. Time Suck High Priest, Alex Dugan, amazing customer service, making sure everyone gets back, gets heard back from. Uh, the guys at Bitelixer, Danger Brain, Space Lizards, Merch Wizards, Access Apparel, Queen of the Suck, Lindsay Cummins. Big thanks once again to OG Bojangles Research Assistance, the Lily Twins, for finding so much great info. Reba and Sarah, hammers of knowledge, giving me a ton of uh, info to choose from. Next week, the weirdness continues with the Space Lizard-selected topic, the Russian sleep experiment. What the hell is that? That's a great question. Uh, it's a permanent fixture in the fabric of deep kind of internet lore, the account of a horrific experiment said to have been conducted in the Soviet Union in the late 1940s. The subjects were five political prisoners placed into a sealed chamber exposed to a gas, which prevented them from sleeping at all. After 15 days, the researchers entered the chamber, found that the men, sleep-deprived beyond any uh, uh, previous sleep deprivation in human history, committed horrors that could scarcely be conceived. From one account, the food rations past day five had not been as much as touched. There were chunks of meat from dead test subjects' thighs and chest. Stuffed into the drain in the center of the chamber, all four surviving test subjects had large portions of muscle and skin torn away from their bodies. The destruction of flesh and exposed bone on their fingertips indicated that the wounds were inflicted by hand. The abdominal organs below the ribcage on all four test subjects had been removed. While the heart, lungs, and diaphragm remained in place, the skin and most of the muscles attached to the ribs had been ripped off, exposing the lungs through the ribcage. Blood vessels, organs remained intact. Yeah, fucking on and on and on. Scary shit, right? But did it even happen? And if it did happen, how did this, or if it did not happen, how did this urban legend, if that's what it is, become part of web lore, become part of web culture? What other similar, interesting, dark, kind of modern folklore tales are out there? A suck into either terrible, real tales or interesting urban web legends next Monday. And now it is time for Time Sucker Updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker updates. Coming in hot this week with an intense update to the Catherine Knight tale from Time Sucker Chris D, who writes, Holy fuck. Dear Reverend Dr. Suckmaster, prophet of Nimrod, exalter of Triple M, belly rubber of Bojangles Esquire. I've been a huge fan for years and got my wife and coworkers to join the cult of the curious. Your latest episode, Sucking Catherine Knight, brought back some flashbacks to one of my own brushes with mortality. A long time ago, when I was 21 or 22, I was a graveyard shift bartender in New Orleans. Oh, man, that'd be an interesting job. I was dating this girl who I considered way out of my league. The sex was awesome, but at the point of climax, she'd occasionally whisper into my ear, Oh, baby, I'm going to kill you. For a while, I thought this was just hot, awesome sex. As time went on, however, she'd switch between being extra clingy and not caring about me at the drop of a hat. I tried to break up with her a couple times. She refused. She literally said, No, we're not done. I was confused and frustrated, but the makeup sex was always mind-blowing. One day, while finishing up my 2 a.m. to 10 a.m. bartending shift, I was complaining to a couple of my buddies at the bar that I needed to end things once and for all. After a handful of shots and some encouragement from my friends, I marched down to her house, uh, to, her house to tell her it was over for good. 
I pounded on the door. She answered wearing an open silk bathrobe and nothing else. Ah, I suddenly forgot why I was there. Yeah, I, I bet. Uh, she said she had just drawn a bath and asked if I wanted to join. I happily obliged. She led me into the bathroom where I quickly undressed and climbed in. She said she was going to get some tea for us. While I sat in the tub, I remembered why I had gone there in the first place, and I began trying to get to again get the strength to break up. When she returned, I was trying to come up with an excuse when I saw an extension cord trailing behind her. Before I could say anything, she did a fake trip, said oops, and tossed the toaster into the bathtub. I watched in slow motion as the tub plopped into the water, or as the toaster plopped into the water. It landed, and I slowly got out of the tub. I'm sure we were both in shock as she stood there staring straight ahead. I pulled the toaster out of the tub by the cord and calmly told her that she had to push the plunger down to complete the circuit. I placed the toaster on the toilet, grabbed my clothes to leave. She still hadn't moved. I walked 12 blocks home naked with my clothes under my arm. It was 11 a.m. I was numb and confused. <laughs> that was something for people to see. I told myself that I explained the whole story. If a cop stopped me, none ever did. It is New Orleans after all. I've run into her a couple times over the years since she, that day, but that's, this never comes up. I'm not sure if she doesn't remember or if she's waiting for me to say something. Either way, I'm alive and the story has gotten me more than a few free beers over the years. Thought you'd appreciate the story. Thanks for all you do. Keep on sucking. My God, man, you are lucky to be alive. Anyone, uh, anyone disappears uh, who you find out was connected to that lady, you better tell that story to the police. I hope, I hope the moment with the toaster in the tub scared some sense into her. Uh, thank, thank you for sharing that tale. That is, yeah, ah, very scary Catherine 90 type X. Uh, time sucker Oakley is spreading the suck globally, and her best bud Caitlin wants me to know about it. Dearest mighty master of suck, I just wanted to drop you a little love and positive vibes, and thank you for blowing my mind with so much awesome information. My best friend Oakley introduced me to the suck a few months ago, and now I owe her my life. She is perhaps the greatest Time Suck fan uh, that lives today, and she is doing an amazing job of spreading the suck. We are on a year-long exchange in Austria. We both live in Australia, so she's doing her best to set the wonderful virus of education loose across Central Europe. That is fucking awesome. Anywho, the point is, as a Christmas present to this phenomenal person, would there be any way for you to share some sort of your love with her, i.e. mention her name in a short little breath or send her an email? Oh, mentioned, mentioned. There's a very good chance she'll have a heart attack and suffer uh, severe physical damage, but I think she will thank you and me for it. I know you probably get these all the time, and I really hope this wouldn't be classified as an idiot of the internet. No, not at all. Uh, thanks for all the joy and education that you've brought into our lives. God bless you and all the other wonderful members of the suck. Hail Nimrod, Caitlin. Well, aren't you adorable, Caitlin? Aren't you a sweet person? Thank you very much. Uh, much love for both of you in Oakley. Thank you so much for spreading the suck. I mean, that means a ton. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, thank you for being curious. Thank you for being awesome. Thanks for uh, enjoying what I do. And thanks for spreading it to others. So hail Nimrod. Yes, Oakley. Much appreciated. Uh, time sucker Devin Posey writes uh, in to let me know that I am not doing a good job of spreading the suck myself. At least not the secret suck. And he's right. Devin writes, hello, Grandmaster Suck. Space Lizard Devin here. Uh, I finally gave up on sending an audio message because it hates me. Just finished the Catherine Knight suck, and I just wanted to say the way you kept saying Catherine drove me fucking insane. My wife's name is Catherine, and now I know I'm going to mispronounce it. Just kidding. I love you. You did a great job. Uh, I did want to say we're 100-plus episodes into Time Suck, and you're still not advertising the secret suck. How are we going to grow our ranks and take over the world if you don't tell people? The content is great. It's, it's worth it. So please start promoting the secret suck. Thank you for everything you do. Hail Nimrod. I want to suck on Lucifer Venus toes. Keep on sucking. Thanks, Devin. No, I got to promote it more. You know, I set these little like um, goals in my head of like, I can't promote it until I get this thing done. 
you know, this one thing is the, uh, the the message board. I wanted to wait until this message board we're working on with the app was done before before promoting it. I might do that earlier, though. We're, we're fixing a Patreon linkage kind of problem and uh, and putting the, the Bitlixer guys on monthly retainers so they can constantly tweak and have upgrades and add some, you know, little tutorials to make it easier. And then I and then I will start promoting the Secret Suck harder. And I may, I probably will pr- start promoting it before we get the message board done because I may opt to kind of do some premium upgrades to make that a little more competitive with some other stuff. Just trying to do it all right. But yes, yes, uh, I am very proud of the Secret Suck. And, you know, when you sign up to be a space lizard, you can listen to it on via Patreon. And then Patreon has an RSS feed so you can listen to it uh, via, you know, other third-party apps. So there's a variety of ways to partake of the Secret Suck once you become a space lizard. And, um, yeah, so thanks. So I, I am very proud of it. We're having more and more fun doing that. Uh, I love hearing the messages from you guys. And, and yeah, just, I, I really, really am proud of what that other podcast has now become. And you get it for five bucks a month. You get an extra episode a week and you get merch discounts and other stuff. You devote on topics. A lot of fun. Uh, finally, time sucker James Johns fulfills a wish I expressed way back in the Pablo Escobar suck. And that's that I wished I knew a Jim John. He writes, Dan, I'm incredibly far behind. Just started listening to Time Suck last week after remembering the Pandora ad I heard. I'm currently listening to the episode on Pablo Escobar, and you just commented on the names uh, and wishing you'd had a Jim John. Well, as much as I absolutely despise people assuming they can call me Jim, especially Colin from people who uh, likely initially gave the name to uh, the, the Jim or gave the name of Jim to the biblical disciple, uh, dumb fucks that can't read my last name or think that maybe I don't know how to spell my own name, in this case, I will allow it. Love the show. Uh, I'll catch up soon. Sucking together, James, Jim, John. And then it's, you know, John's, but James, Jim, John. Um, Yeah, actually, Jim, uh, Jim, John, you have a better name than Jim, John. You have three first names. Uh, (laughs) Your first, middle, and last name are all first names. I love it. You're Jim Ed John, which to me sounds like some kind of like Paul Bunyan type, you know, uh, mythological character. There once was a man who could fight like three, Jim Ed John. He rode like a bear. Wait, I'm going to start over. I, wrote, I, started, I, I thought I was about Roar. Hold on. I want to get this. I worked on this. I want to get my gym. I want to get my gym at John. Ahem. And take two. There once was a man who could fight like three. Jim Ed John. He rode a bear for a horse and his pipe was a tree. Jim Ed John. He hunted with his hands and he fished with his tongue. Jim Ed John. With arms like legs, he drinks beer from kegs. Jim Ed John. How do you like that? How do you like that, Jim Ed John? Thanks for writing in, man. Thanks to all of you for writing in. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Thanks for sucking with me today, you meat sacks. Have a happy Halloween. I'm dressing up like Chicken Joe. I just ordered a whole bunch of shit, had it rushed. Uh, not easy to get that chicken head cane. Got a little chicken costume. A lot of them are sold out. I was a little late, but looks like it's all going to show up in time. I'm going to have a pretty fun, uh, you know, Chicken Joe. Just bark, bark, playboy. Little costume. He didn't stop by this week, but he'll be back. He'll be back. Uh, keep those demons out of your buttholes. And keep on sucking. We could open a portal to hell. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At Capella University. 
you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.